Um, so we're going to get into um, just sort of discussing um, the uh, the Decalogue. But um, before before we do that, um, we were previously part of a uh, podcast network called the Twenty Fifth Frame. Um, you may still be hearing this on the Twenty Fifth Frame Network feed. Uh, that network is no no lo- no longer uh, in existence. Uh, so if you do want to continue to listen to the show, you will have to subscribe to our own feed, which is already up and running on iTunes. Um, and so as long as you subscribe to that, you will be uh, un- uninterrupted in your enjoyment of our ramblings on Kieślowski and future directors. Um, the other thing about the network is that before it was, uh, before the plug was pulled, um, we were planning on promoting other shows that were on the network. Um, we had a lot of great shows on the network, a lot of wonderful people that we're still in contact with and that we still listen to their shows on a regular basis, um, and donate to many of their Patreons, which I definitely recommend everybody do. Um, we're going to cover those shows anyway because we love them and we want people who might not have heard them to check them out um and uh the first one that we were planning on doing anyway this month is uh just the discs with brian sauer yeah this is a this is the be all end all for disc collecting every month either uh takes a stack of discs from a different uh, boutique label or a bigger label or a theme or he just talks about like one or two discs that he really likes or uh, it's it's a bevy and it's just basically him discussing the disc the content on the disc uh, and what's what's out there what's coming out it's it's kind of like it's the news for people who love collecting movies <laughs> and uh, this, this is my wallet's least favorite show yes. Um, I is there there have been times when uh, he covers a movie that I hate and by the end of the conversation I'm like maybe I should buy that disc just check it out again <laughs> yeah they made a very compelling episode on Waterworld a movie I could care less about but man they sold that uh, they sold that limited edition box set from Arrow like it was nobody's business uh, yeah people all, all those companies should be uh, should be paying him to promote this stuff because his love comes through on every episode and uh, i appreciate him being a solid voice out there for uh physical media collection yeah and and he's just he's got a really uh enthusiastic attitude about films of of all kinds and and about all of the labels and and the the discs that that we both love and um it's it's definitely a worthy listen and uh, we also want to congratulate him on um, finding a new home for the show, which is uh, the Rebeller podcast network and, and website. Um, so we definitely wish him the best and um, hope that he continues to uh, keep me as broke as possible. Mm. Broke but happy. Amen. Hello and welcome to The Complete Shishtof Kieślowski. This is episode 14 and we will be closing out our coverage of Kieślowski's TV masterwork, The Decalogue, which we wrapped up our episode by episode coverage of last time with episodes 9 and 10. Today we have what uh, we feel is a pretty special treat 
for you, which is a interview with a Polish scholar and film critic. And we'll be talking about the Decalogue and also Kieślowski's work as a whole, um, its context in Polish society, and his thoughts on the series and Kieślowski's filmography. Uh, we found it to be a fascinating conversation, so I hope you enjoy. There are a couple of audio blips that you may notice, so I apologize in advance for those, but I think it's still going to be well worth your time to uh, take an hour and listen to this. Afterwards, we will reconvene and discuss the Decalogue as a whole and my thoughts and Travis's thoughts on this series, which has been a really remarkable journey. But for now, I hope you enjoy this interview. We are here with Michal Oleszczyk, who is a uh, Polish film journalist and scholar. Um, I could introduce you, but I think you would do a much better job of it. How are you today, Michal? Thank you so much for, for taking the time to come on with us all the way over in Poland. Oh, thank you so much, guys. It's a, it's a pleasure, it's an honor, and uh, I'm really so happy to be joining you on this episode. I've been uh, following your podcast for quite a while now, and I was really thrilled uh, to hear that you are doing such a great job of covering um, and discussing uh, Kieślowski's work. Uh, my uh, yeah, I, I, I actually teach film here in Warsaw at the University of Warsaw at um, Liberal Arts uh, College, and uh, I taught classes related to history of Polish cinema and uh, history of American cinema. And uh, specifically, I wrote a couple of times on uh, Kieślowski's work, uh, mainly for um, the Cineast Film Quarterly. Uh, and I uh, recently I also delved a little bit into podcasting myself because I, me and my friend are doing um, a podcast uh, focused on the wor work of Alfred Hitchcock, which is called Foreign Correspondents, uh, and and we are trying to um, you know to 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 uh, discuss Hitchcock in in more depth. But yeah, I I I'm teaching film and uh, also uh, write about film here in Poland and sometimes for American outlets as well. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, we've we've both uh, read uh, some of your work on Kieślowski, and uh, I'm, uh, we will discuss it uh, through the process of this uh, conversation. But um, we, I, I found a lot of interesting things uh, out, uh, both in terms of facts, and I think some of your observations were were really insightful. So it's uh, it's very exciting to have you on and um, and talk about uh, Kieślowski, especially from. A Polish perspective. Um, the first, the first thing that we uh, do typically uh, for guests is is ask uh, how you came to Kieślowski. It's probably uh, a unique answer that's going to come from you uh, compared to uh, most of the the English uh, native English speaking guests that we typically have on the show. Um, so I was just curious um, when you were first exposed to his work and how your uh, relationship with him as has evolved uh, as a film watcher as you've both become a, a film teacher and um, delved more into the history both of his life and the films that he made sure yeah uh, it's uh, actually it's kind of funny because uh, yeah I, I grew up in Poland and um, 
uh, you know, 80s and 90s. I, I was born in 1982, so around the time that uh, Kishlovsky, you know, finished. Me too. Uh, oh, there you go. There you go. So Great. around now, I feel like the old man of the group. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll be the youngsters. Uh, I um, uh, that was the time that. So I was, you know, I was born literally um, during the the martial mm. law period in Poland, yes. which was between 1981 and. 1983, which of course means that I have no recollection whatsoever of martial law, although I do have some recollection of of the communist years, which which ended in 1989, and you know in early 90s I was um, around you know nine ten, and I just was becoming really interested in movies, and I, I as any eight or nine year old, I would mostly watch you know like adventure stuff. That was the time of. Uh, you know, Home Alone, um, Jurassic Park. These were my big movies that yeah. I would go repeatedly uh, to see in my, um, you know, uh, in my hometown. I grew up in the south of Poland, and uh, that was crucial, crucial, you know, information, also crucial difference from, you know, uh, a kid that would be growing up in the States, for example, at the same time, was that for us, right after 1989, it was really the... This, this sort of the, the shock of the new in terms of how many American films became available. B- before that, it was really very much... Um, there was there was a very, very uh, big shortage of American films on Polish screen. So after 1989 and after 1990, there was this flooding of, of, uh, of, of American films in Polish theaters, but also the very first video... Um, the rental stores were open because during communism we couldn't have those because you know that was too much too much freedom you know for people to exchange uh, uh, movies uh, freely so we didn't have uh, rentals video rentals before that so there was this whole VHS revolution going on in 1991 1992 and I pretty much you know benefited from that as a young young cinephile but I was only interested at, at first I was only interested in you know Spielberg uh, and and adventure films Ghostbusters 2 was my favorite film of all time and uh, you know <laughs> that, that was the, really like my brother my older brother took me to see it and I was yeah this is this is cinema you know this is absolutely <laughs> the best cinema has to um, has to offer yeah and uh, and you know it was funny because at that time around 1993 I was 11 and I became aware of Kishlovsky because uh, that was the time when the Three Colors trilogy uh, right. started to have its huge success, and every you know once in a while on on the news, on TV, or you know in a newspaper, I would just see this name and I would see this this guy and uh, you know this sort of sullen face that he always had. You know, he never looked happy. He always looked like like there was a ton of you know problems and worries on his shoulders. And I I remember very distinctly that um, at that time uh, two, two two things. First of all, my mom said that I was too young to see those movies, so I couldn't really you know go and see Blue, which I guess was a smart decision on her uh, on her part. Uh, but also, um, I, I remember very distinctly that uh, two years later, in 1995, so quite quickly. All three movies were actually broadcast on Polish television, so it was uh, it was a quite you know very very fast um, uh, uh, transfer from cinemas to television, and that was when I watched those um, those films, and I did watch Blue and I did watch Red at that time, um, and I was blown away 
just by the physical beauty of them. You know, I, I remember watching especially Red. Uh, at that time, I was very much interested in the visual uh, aspect of, of movie making. And uh, I remember those incredible shots, you know, of the of the fashion, uh, you know, uh, the, the the fashion show and uh, uh, and the, the whole section in the bowling uh, alley with you know mm-hmm. this moving moving camera. And I remember thinking to myself, "Wow, like this is this is just beautiful, you know? It's 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 such power. It's such a powerful image." And then I I started reading a little bit about Kishlovsky and I you know slowly started to discover discover his work which wasn't that easy I mean not all of the stuff was on VHS some of it was available most of it actually wasn't uh, and uh, so I would actually scan you know listings TV listings for his uh, for his works uh, but actually the the most powerful um, impulse for me to uh, actually to to seek out the work to really plunge into it was Kishlovsky's death because I, I do remember that day very well when he died on thirteenth uh, of March nineteen ninety six I remember that day very well it was such a shock to all of Poland you know like he was this guy I mean success after success he was still young I mean I it, he was frightfully young when I think of it now yeah. you know I mean uh, back then of course I would say that he was old but now I look at it I mean he was he was a young guy and uh, uh, everyone was was in deep state of shock and that was when uh, polish television started to uh, show his work uh, more often sort of in this in memoriam uh, kind of way and that's when uh, when i started watching watching more and uh, i do remember this uh, profound impression that uh, was made by blind chance and uh, this went beyond just you know physical beauty of the image it's not the most beautiful film of Kishlovsky in by by any standard just visually but i do remember being moved by this whole concept you know like what if what if yeah. your life uh, goes uh, this way what if you you know and how how much control actually do you have over your own life and um I was probably fifteen at the time, so I was going to uh, to high school and I do remember you you know the one single image if you ask me about one single image from Kishlovsky's work from that that period and uh, you know my 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 reception of the work it's that uh, that coin that single coin that is rolling on the train platform yeah. and is picked up by this by this guy and he he orders a beer i i just i just thought there's so, so, such an irony to this uh, to this image and i yeah and that's that's probably the crucial point for me and of course later on you know when i started to actually study film i i discovered the documentaries and I was completely blown away, but that's uh, that's you know the further part of uh, of the story. That's uh, that's awesome. I I wonder uh, did in Poland at the time in the early time did they uh, when you said there wasn't a a lot of uh, foreign films coming into Poland was there I know there was an underground music scene at that time as well was there an underground film scene where there like weird showings and exchanges like. Uh, off the radar that they were that they uh did or was uh was it pretty much just uh off the table until uh until uh the the west was opened up yeah well uh, the 80s uh, is an interesting decade and i know this mo- mostly secondhand because i was you know i was i was 
small a small child so i don't right. mm-hmm. I, I didn't remember that but i uh, yes there was a underground scene of mainly vhs exchanges because you know people even though we didn't have legal uh, video rental stores uh, you couldn't entirely uh, you know ban the entire population especially since some people actually traveled a little bit in the world right. so people were bringing uh, vcrs from from the west of course you you couldn't legally bring them but people did anyhow you know in various ways so yes in the 80s um there was a whole underground network of uh, vhs uh, screenings of of certain films and i know that uh, well first of all some porn was being distributed that way because that's that's always you know impossible to suppress that's you know when i was that young that was how porn was distributed as well yeah Uh, (laughs) underground through vhs exchange tapes clandestine vhs exchanges exactly exactly and uh, although in poland was mostly german porn uh, go go figure uh, or italian and uh, and at that time uh, you know the the most uh, of, of of course the most um, the hottest titles were the ones that were sort of banned because of political reasons there's a one particular mm. film that i would recommend uh, uh to watch just to just to sort of get the idea of those times uh, the film by richard bugajski called interrogation uh, which which dealt with the Stalinist era of uh, early fifties and with this brutal police uh, secret police investigations and uh, basically terror uh, torture that the Stalinist um, regime uh, was perpetrating in Poland in the fifties and th- that was focused on the very strong performance very strong female performance by an actress who actually you know from Decalogue Two Krystyna uh, Janda she she plays the uh, the woman in Decalogue. Uh, look to uh, the one who wonders if she should keep a child and uh, uh, and you know that movie uh, when it was completely banned in the 80s i mean they they allowed to make the film uh, in 1981 uh, before the martial law started sort of on this wave of uh, solidarity and on this wave of uh, the worker strikes in the very early 80s which made it seem for a second there that was that there was actually some opening up some relaxation of the regime so they actually secured a right to shoot the film they they did shoot it they made it uh, uh, they called it interrogation and uh, then the movie got shelved the movie got actually shelved alongside with blind chance which also was made mm. but then was immediately uh, shelved uh, but um bl- so both Blind Chance actually had some life on VHS, but mostly it was interrogation, uh, which which was this you know brutal indictment of the of the state and of the state uh, brutality. And interesting fact is that Christina Yanda, the main actress, uh, she actually won a Best Actress award for this film at Cannes Film Festival in 1990. So once they actually unshelved the film, it did premiere at Cannes Film Festival in 1990, and she was awarded. The, the award for best actress so uh, and it, it is a very wow. extremely powerful performance so i would recommend it but but yes people would distribute that on illegal vhs tapes and they would watch it usually you know in a small group uh, just to just to watch it and it was a sort of a act of uh, I, I guess civil disobedience, you know, uh, to mm-hmm. to watch um, uh, to watch this film, and you know, towards the end of the eighties, there was even more uh, VHS traffic. I would say I do remember very distinctly another film which 
I know that caused also a lot of controversy in the states, which, uh, states which was uh, last temptations, uh, temptation of Christ. Yes. That that also uh, had pretty good, uh, you know, uh, uh, traffic uh, on on illegal VHS uh, uh, tapes. But the real VHS explosion comes in the nineties and pretty much defines who I am because I was I was shaped by that VHS explosion of the of the early nineties. Um. That that's super interesting. Uh, thank you for for that context. Um, I, I mean, I think along similar lines, we were curious to get your viewpoint of Kieślowski's work in the context of kind of Polish film or society. Just what do you think for uh, native English speakers and for people who don't aren't familiar with the culture of Poland? What do you feel like? we're missing or do you feel like we're missing something that is sort of crucial to understanding this work mm, i i was i was thinking about that before before we um connected today i would say that uh, and by the way I, I just want to stress that um there is a new book that came out literally i think six months ago months ago uh, by this polish uh, reporter biographer called uh, Katarzyna Surmiak-Domańska. Uh, she wrote a new book, a new biography of Kieślowski. She she, mm. du- she dug through tons of materials and his private correspondence. And, uh, you know, it's a really brand new biography that pretty much, uh, I, I think it should be translated into English. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it is uh, translated soon. Uh, so I have a pretty fresh take on, on, on him because I just, you know, I finished, when it when it came out, I immediately uh, I immediately read it, and uh, for me also, as, even though I felt that I was already quite familiar with uh, Kieślowski's work, what was really surprising is that his films were mostly um, either misunderstood when they came out in Poland, or act- actively rejected. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't anyone's idea of a favorite filmmaker at any stage of his career except for the very last and uh, I, I mean that, that's this very bitter irony in uh, Kieślowski's biography in general that it came at the very end of his life uh, that you know this all recognition came both in Poland and in uh, abroad uh, basically because you know right. if, if you look at the lists of awards it's really the single screening that actually this author that I mentioned she uh, she describes it in detail. The Cannes Film Festival screening of short film about killing. She says that that screening in 1988 or 9, uh, I, I would need to check that, uh, that was the redefining screening of his career. Because uh, Polish film industry representatives were fighting for Kieślowski's films to be accepted at Cannes Film Festival for years. And for years, Cannes wasn't really interested. They They felt like they had... Polish territory basically covered with Andrzej Wajda's work. Like it was right. okay, so yeah. Wajda is the yeah. Polish guy, right? So we already have a Polish guy, so we don't need <laughs> another one. And uh, and they were, you know, they were sending those letters. I mean, the Polish, you know, production uh, companies, you know, please consider this guy. I mean, he's really, he's really interesting. And uh, they would get those polite rejections. Uh, I guess, um, I think. Uh, 
either unfinished or a badly subtitled version of Blind Chance was uh, was screened at Cannes in one of the side sections at some point. But it wasn't really until 1988 when finally they admitted a short film about killing into the main competition. And that screening really shocked everyone into acknowledging, okay, this is this is a major filmmaker, you know, like we've been missing him for all those years, and then people went back to the to the earlier films, and that pretty much mirrors how he was perceived here, you know. I mean, uh, Kieślowski was uh, for years just sort of doing his own thing, pursuing his private and you know very, uh, I would say, intimate uh, preoccupations. And uh, they were not always in sync with what people wanted to see in Poland uh, on Polish right. screens. W- one famous example, although this this movie also I think is highly problematic in in many ways, is No End, um, the the film from nineteen eighty two, is it or eighty one? Um, the, or, or no, it's actually later eighty four, right? Yeah, eighty four. Yeah, yeah. It's after martial law. Uh, that yeah. film was. Uh, panned like across the board when when it opened in Poland in 1984 it was downright hated because uh, pe- people felt like you know mm, for for a film about the martial law period it was sort of too mild in its de- depiction of the period and on the second hand people sort of wanted something happier like you know it was a grim and difficult decade so people wanted films to be more optimistic and here you have a film that basically advocates suicide almost at the, you know in the very yeah. last scene so so this film was brutally rejected and uh, so so if you ask me if you are missing something i don't i don't think you are missing uh, any like crucial uh, context the the only thing that i feel should be realized more by by people who are you know writing about Kishlovsky or, or talking about Kishlovsky is that there was a deep hunger within him to be a international filmmaker to be internationally recognized because he knew very well that his talent and his abilities placed him firmly in the you know at the very sort of top of of the game but by by sheer circumstance you know of working here working with this this system you know behind the iron curtain it was much more difficult for him to actually gain this international recognition and when it came finally at the very end of the, his career it overwhelmed him uh, incredibly i mean you know this whole success of those 13 films because i, I decalogue and three colors they're basically like 13 films made in a very short period of time, plus Veronique, which is also a separate right. separate film. It's an incredible outburst of creativity, and I would say it's, um, it's uh, also because he finally felt like, yes, this is my moment, you know, like I, I finally have this international stage, so let's do something really... Uh, really special and uh, you know the stress of making that and the the sheer effort I think also contributed to his early death because I mean can you imagine (laughs) just you know making making so many major films in such a short period of time it was uh, an extraordinary effort and I think that it was almost too much uh, for him to handle well, it was also a, a, certainly an escalation or an acceleration of his creative process to that point. I mean, I'm curious if you feel like the fact that really half of his output up until Decalogue 
was television films. Is there kind of the same divide in Poland between films that are shown theatrically versus films that are shown on TV in terms of cultural value that we have in America where television films are kind of looked down on a little bit, whereas theatrical films are kind of the apex of cinema, where cinema belongs. Yeah, I would say that uh, it's it's not an entirely um, identical situation, but it's uh, it's pretty much uh, the same. And, uh, you know, for him to work in um, Polish television, in po- Polish public television, because there was no, uh, no other television at the time, right. was uh, in, in a way both... Um, uh, the meaning because he always you know his heart was sort of uh, with uh, um on the side of of theatrical uh, filmmaking uh, but also uh, this may be interesting as a piece of context uh, politically and morally problematic especially in the 80s because you know uh, television in in general in Poland uh, at that time uh, but also today in in a, another way was highly politicized you know and uh, there was there were times especially in the 80s when people felt like um, you know working within that system was in some way morally problematic so for him and this this came actually it came up at the time of decalogue which was fascinating and i actually learned this from this book that i mentioned that when he first came up with the idea for decalogue which was in the second half of of the 80s um it, people told him you know people from the artistic circles his friends you know don't do it don't don't work for national television you know like they are liars basically and you shouldn't you shouldn't do that they are you know p- propagandists they are working for the communist government and on the, and he knew that by you know basically striking this deal to make the series he uh, made a controversial decision in the eyes of his peers um, on the other hand, uh, many people actually refused to work at Decalogue, which also shocked me, because uh, they oh, wow. re- they read scripts uh, of the episodes, and one major accusation that many of them made, and and there are actually you know documents to support this, was that how can you be making this completely a political work right. at the time where we what we need is actually political agency, political art, you know, like we need to express our political resistance to our art. And here you are making those small, intimate films about, you know, like a woman just, you know, walking around and thinking about right. life, you know, and, and, and so, eliminating things like the food shortages or things, exactly like the actual life, life of what it was like to live in Poland at the time. Exactly. Uh, because, uh, and I, this is the part I do remember from the eighties, the shortages were indeed acute. I mean, you know, uh, the, the famed and by now comical example but it's not not comical once you are living through it. Uh, is, is you know the, the shortages of toilet paper, you know, like which were which were severe oh. at the time, you know, and people uh, trying to cope with that. I mean, it's it's uh, funny and humiliating at the same time. But yeah. the shortages were really acute and and brutal at times. So people were standing for hours in lines, you know, like literally four hours to get a loaf of bread. So once you are going through a decade that is that humiliating and um, deprived. Uh, many artists felt like, listen, you should you should be dealing with this instead of showing, you know, this quite 
actually upscale, if you can believe it, uh, uh, you know, housing project with uh, people who actually seem to be living quite maybe not wealthy but like comfortable lives and um uh, this and yes and some people refused to work at the catalog which seems crazy from today's perspective when it's like you know one of the landmarks of world cinema and television but yeah that was the the feeling at the time and this is something also by the way that i do remember quite distinctly when it first aired i didn't watch the decalogue i mean i was it wasn't even interested like i was seven uh and or eight but i do remember my parents watching it and i do remember looking at i think it was the episode with yanda the the second episode uh, about the yeah. the wife and i do remember looking at this apartment and thinking to myself wow like this is a wealthy <laughs> lady you know i mean she has an answering machine you know she has those like uh horizontal shades which pretty much spelled to us you know like uh, i don't know nine and a half weeks or something like that like you know like this whole (laughs) 1980s uh glitz chic eroticism so and if you look at the series in that way those apartments have many appliances that uh, that we basically didn't have at the time you know and it's almost funny for me to go back to it now and uh, I, I even you know rewatched some fragments before today's talk and you know like in in episode 4 about the incest uh, yes. uh, the you know the the, the uh, daughter has this room filled with like those cool posters that I would really yeah, like I mean, to have. Cigarette eye. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. cigarette eye. Yeah. I mean this was something that wow like every at that time I would look at it and think where did you get that? You know, I want this. I want this poster. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and in episode two, uh, the doctor is listening to English uh, radio, new English news, BBC. seeking news on the on yeah on the radio. Yeah. So there were there were definitely signs of the West all over, per- perhaps more than signs of Poland. Absolutely, and you know, I I also think that, and I have no way of proving this that Kieślowski, in a way was quite savvy in how he made the whole series universal, let's say. I mean, I think it was Mm -hmm. very smart on his uh, part to let's say, depolonize the whole world of that of that series. Because, you know, even by choosing last names that are sort of like... Uh, actually, I don't know what what last, what kind of a last name is Labrador, you know, but but like names that don't, don't sound like specifically Polish and that people wouldn't have that much trouble pronouncing. And by... Um, also, uh, you know, the whole, the whole series, I think, in visual terms, was almost, if you think um, of it, uh, like a showcase of different directorial skills. It was almost like sh- like showing what I can do. Like there's a ch- car chase in part three, which oh, is yeah. edited yeah. in like, you know, like an action sequence from, from an American film. It's like, you know, drive or something like that. And there's this very <laughs> quiet uh, chamber piece, number two, right? There's almost a comedy in, in 10. Uh, so right. it's almost like him showing, look, like I, I have all those skills, you know, like I, I can do this. I can, I can actually direct many different, um, different uh, things. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't go as far as suggesting that Kishlovsky saw Body Double with <laughs> Melanie Griffith and, uh, you know, I mean, I mean the whole... Uh, <laughs> Six episode, but I did find information in that book, and this actually made me pause. 
that Melanie Griffith was his favorite actress and he he really wanted to work with her like that was his fantasy to work with Melanie Griffith so if you look at like episode 6 of uh, of Decalogue right. and yeah, like those sequences with uh, you know the boy uh, spying on the on the woman I, I think there there's a good chance that actually he saw Brian De Palma, you know, and he, uh, you know, chose the most glamorous actress available, who was uh, Grażyna Szapowska, who is really, you know, beautiful and, and gorgeous. And and he did stage, you know, a very erotic and also problematic sequence, as as you pointed out yeah. uh, at, at, at when you were discussing uh, Six. Well, and so. I, could, I could definitely see a split screen in that episode fitting right in. <laughs> oh, sure. And Pino Di Naggio's score. The Nudge score is all, all that's missing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, that's one of the things that I've I've uh, we've we've struck upon a few times is that whenever uh, Kishlowski goes for Universal and just telling a personal story, the politics uh, ring a lot more true than when he's being overtly political. Right. Um. So that's 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 interesting that that's. Uh, that people were uh, championing him to be more political at the time because he had a voice and a power to to do that. And I think by staying uh, universal, it ends up becoming something that more people can understand and more people can get behind. Um, now, you know, in, in these modern times, are these films still relevant to modern-day Poland? Are they considered something that is... Uh, uh, a value, or they just kind of looked at a historical artifacts, something to be studied, or these films still, uh, you know, considered in modern Poland to be, you know, something worth watching. Right. Well, I, I you know, I teach students, and I know that for them, Kishlovsky is interesting. I mean, they, they, you know, they like watching him, and uh, uh, and it's always uh, fun to show. Um, Blind Chance, for example, in a class and and discuss it and uh, so and and especially the documentaries. I I cannot tell you how many wonderful classes I taught and how many wonderful discussions I had with students just by showing them one of the documentaries. My absolute favorite is uh, Seven Women of Different Ages uh, mm-hmm. because it's a great conversation opener. You know, you just show it and. Uh, and you know people watch it and then suddenly there's this realization that oh wow this is like you know a story of one woman really and, and you know there's 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 a whole bunch of stuff that you can discuss so uh, Kishlovsky is considered a classic uh, on the other hand he isn't really served well by let's say DVD market in Poland which can be very um, sort of erratic and uh, uh, you know, it wasn't until very recently that some of the films were finally released. Uh, the irony is that I have uh, this beautiful Arrow uh, video. Was it Arrow? Yeah, the TV work uh, yeah. box set, yes. which was yeah. a British box set, but I, I do have it on my shelf because this TV work actually wasn't released in Poland on, on DVD. Ah. So that's, you know, the paradoxes of... Um, of the DVD distribution. Uh, last year, I think, they produced this ridiculously expensive uh, big Blu-ray box of uh, the complete Kishlovsky. It wasn't really complete. I think there was something missing, but it's like a hefty, very expensive box that I didn't actually, I didn't buy it. It was just too too pricey. Uh, and I have all the things, uh, you know, in other formats. But, um, so he is one of those... Um, great i would say but by now also something else creeps in and i think you actually sensed that as well when you were discussing some of the aspects of decalogue that decalogue became 
almost quaint, you know, like in its in its mm. in its tone, you know, like it feels like today's world is so polarized and so you know, like with social media and all the craziness going on politically, like it seems that the Kalok is almost like like this uh, quaint little series, you know, because because everyday life in Poland nowadays, and I guess in the States as well, can generate so much stress and uh, animosity and, you know, political tensions that uh, I think uh, Decalogue now is, is truly um, considered something of a past more than uh, of, of the present moment. Although I, I need to insert a personal note, um, I've been going to see... Uh, um, psychotherapist uh, like uh, last year for a few sessions and uh, the, 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 the funny thing is her office, my therapist office was exactly where the, uh, the where the colleague was shot, like I was sitting next like in front of my therapist looking through the window on the decalogue projects you know on the housing projects <laughs> like with this imposing like you know the balconies the the perfect decalogue vista i was seeing my you know my therapist uh, face and behind it was the decalogue <laughs> background i mean it was it was something else you know to to try to uh, go through to therapy in in, in this uh, in this <laughs> environment and i actually uh, i'm speaking right now from a place that's very very close i mean it's like i'm literally two tram stops from from the decalogue oh. location what it, what is that area like now uh, in and sort of you know what even what it was necessarily like then if you're if you're aware uh, kind of what that neighborhood is like and what what that building is like yeah it's, that building it's 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 funny you know that uh, that building was um, considered like this sort of uh, upscale apartment building uh, in right. the 80s and uh, right now it remained that in a way because they invested um, into it and uh, uh, right now they actually it's like a closed um, uh, like housing area, like you cannot really enter. Like there, there's a gate, mm. there's a gate, and it's only pr- for the residents. So I once uh, snuck into <laughs> the place <laughs> when when the when the gate was open because I wanted to take some pictures. You know, I wanted to take sure. a picture of myself in the decal. But it's so funny that you know, like the uh, it, all it took is. Um, 30 years and we went from communism to like this late capitalism in which you know we have this sort of rich people uh, <laughs> a gated community, a gated, yeah. a gated community. <laughs> um, the the housing project is located uh, um, between the um, John Paul II uh, Avenue and uh, a, co- a street that um, is called Jika Street uh, which literally means wild street if you believe it uh, oh my and God. Uh, yeah it's it's <laughs> poetic yeah it's like a Wes Craven film you know like the house on Wild Street or something something like that and uh, and it's yeah it's it's a very imposing it's uh, it's a big housing project and no- nowadays those apartments are expensive because they the layouts of the buildings was uh, you know uh, very generous let's say the, the apartments were quite big those big balconies and uh, they they were renovated so it's it's still i would say quite a desirable Location, you know, but right now, uh, quite expensive. It became almost like those condos, you know, that that people rent. And uh, uh, I, I can send you a picture. I will just take it <laughs> the other, another day, and I will send you uh, a picture. It it looks uh, pretty okay, I would say. It doesn't have this decrepit look that that snuck into, especially episode five, you know. In uh, in looking, uh, doing kind of research on the series, I stumbled upon a series of kind of um, 
fold out pop up uh 3D models of uh the of not that specific building but of sort of the Polish uh housing complex buildings complete with um authentic graffiti and things like that and that you know they're about they're about like six inches tall so it's just like this small mini paper fold out thing is there is there sort of that kind of um uh sort of almost like kitschy collector nostalgia for that era oh yeah or is that kind of like an exception it is there is there there's a big i mean probably it may be dying out slowly i mean you know as, as the time passes it's but uh throughout the past 10 years there was a lot of um communist uh, vintage uh, hipster memorabilia <laughs> you know like it's uh, <laughs> th- those block of blocks of flats the cars Actually, the um, food rationing stamps that were distributed in the eighties oh also they they made their way all the way to I mean to 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 coffee mugs and uh, you know it's oh it, it's it, it, there's not there's nothing that that late capitalism won't you know devour in ter- in order to to sell. I'm trying to think of like the most absurd examples. Well, yeah, the, probably the most absurd absurd example is the. I think it's still ongoing. Uh, when you are in Warsaw and or in Krakow, uh, the biggest two biggest tourist locations in this in, in this country, uh, there there is something that is called the communist tour. Uh, basically, there are those guys. You pay them to be driven around in the decrepit communist car. Uh, they are dressed up like Soviet commissars. They give you freezing <laughs> vodka and they, you know, take you to locations that that are somehow connected to the to the communist regime but yeah i mean it's it, by now it's just became a commodity like 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 everything else oh, under yeah. under under capitalism you know so 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 yeah and i think uh, i i need to check that but i think actually the one on one of those buildings or at least in the uh, in the vicinity there may be a mural of Kishlovsky. i think there is a, actually a mural of him mm. uh, just you know to to commemorate the fact that he was um uh, that he was uh, working there. Although uh, another interesting thing, I actually visited Kishlovsky's apartment, the one that he lived at. It's uh, in the southern part of Warsaw, uh, which is called Mokotov. Uh, I had the privilege of meeting uh, Kishlovsky's widow, Maria Kishlovska, and uh, I, I helped to program a series of his films uh, a year ago. And you know, she's a very, very gracious, gracious lady. And uh, I, I did see the apartment, and I did see uh, the awards. You know, the awards that he got. She still, she still has them. And uh, uh, it was, it was in this very nice uh, green residential area that was built before the Second World War. So actually, this sort of like old brownstones uh, type of area. So Kishlovsky himself wasn't living in an apartment like the one that we see in Decalogue. He he lived in an older older building which uh, wasn't wasn't too big but was quite gracious and very beautifully located in the south southern part of Poland very close to the film studio that he that he worked at. Do you remember do you remember off the top of the head what off the top of your head what a uh... What films you programmed? What were the what were your choices for that little uh, programming? Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. I um, well, that's part of a bigger thing actually, because uh, and again, this is a thing I I I, I want um, to tell you about. Uh, the festival took place um, in Sokołowsko, which is a very mm-hmm. tiny mm-hmm. place in the south of Poland, and you may look it up um, because it's it's uh, actually an important 
sort of uh, spot on the Kishlovsky map. Uh, Sokolovsko is a place where Kishlovsky lived very early in his life. There was a tuberculosis sanatorium uh, there that his father uh, was attending as a patient. Right. You mm-hmm. may you might have uh, mentioned that actually yeah. at some point. So the sanatorium is no longer there. The buildings are there in a very decrepit state, but there is a sort of a cultural center which actually is quite lively, and uh, the, they created. Um, what can be, let's say, named the Krzysztof Kieślowski Foundation. Uh, and the widow, Maria, she uh, donated all of the documents, all of, of the scripts, all of the photos, all of the private letters, everything. She graciously donated it to this uh, foundation. So Sokołowska now holds the biggest collection of private papers by Kieślowski uh, in the world, there, it's all of it is like meticulously storaged, and you know, as a scholar, for example, you can come there and you know look for stuff that's relevant to your Kieślowski project or whatever. Uh, and this is how I first actually came there. And they also organized something that is called homage a Kieślowski, uh, like homage to Kieślowski every. Uh, every August um, in a small theater where he actually went when he was a kid. He went to yeah, that oh, very awesome, uh, small, wow. small cinema, which is like, it, it's not in, like, it's a little bit decrepit, but it has its own charm, like uh, the small screen, and uh, it's called uh, Kino Zdrowie, which literally, uh, we have very strange names. It's literally like a healthy cinema, you know, like, because it was next <laughs> to the sanatorium and the patients w- would go there yeah, so yeah. that was part of therapy you know like to go and see see movies so um so yeah uh, long story short i did program uh, a small series and because this was the the year of um the 25th anniversary of uh red uh, we showed red and uh, some documentaries and also a visual essay by lee singer i don't know if you came across that mm. essay it's on um, BFI, British Film Institute's website, um, uh, it's just called Three Colors Silver. He, he created this small essay to celebrate Three Colors on its silver anniversary. And it's a very beautiful, like, 15 minutes video. He, yes. Uh, yeah. I have that bookmarked for, for, <laughs> for when we watch You them. will definitely yeah. come to that later on <laughs> in, the, in the series. And uh, what was nice, we actually managed to invite Lee, and he came. Uh-huh. Uh, he was there, and, you know, there was a very nice panel between him, uh, a film critic, uh, Diana Dombrowska from Poland, and Krzysztof Piesiewicz, who is the screenwriter, the co-screenwriter. Mm-hmm. He came as well. And, uh, you know, they had a very nice conversation on on Three Colors, and there was just something magical about it. Uh, What I do love about Sokolowska also, and about the archive, is that once you enter the archive room, like the actual space where the... um, where the uh, all the documents are being held, what greets you sort of like immediately when you open the door? There's beautifully displayed camera from Camera Buff, you know that that very oh, camera that uh, that awesome. Philip was using. So I actually held the camera in my hand, and you know since I really love Camera Buff, <laughs> it may be my favorite yeah. Kishlovsky. I that was very yeah. emotional for me just to you know just to hold it and look through the um, viewfinder, <laughs> just like Philip uh, Philip did. So uh, you know. Hopefully, uh, by some by some um, 
uh, in some fashion, one day maybe you can come to Sokovsk. That would be wonderful. Oh, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Now you had said uh, you had said earlier, uh, you know, uh, that documentary. I think even in one of your writings, you wrote that uh, uh, for Kishlowski, uh, he'll forever remain the ultimate master of short documentary form. And I know that you uh, were talking earlier about uh, the Seven Women uh, documentary. Um, could you talk a little bit about what you think is so effective about his documentary style in the early stage of his career? Mm, sure, absolutely. I... I, I I love those films. I I think like literally, like ev- like mo- most of them are are small masterpieces. Maybe not all of them, but but most of them. Um, well, I I think that he had a unique talent, and I can only call it genius. To um, you know, take something very simple, like you know, just like what what is seven women in the, of different ages? It's just seven, you know, women <laughs> dancing or yeah. preparing to dance. And literally nothing else. I mean, there is no voiceover. There is no, no no heavy, you know, like quotation at the beginning that would, you know, give you the meaning of the film. And yet he transforms this very simple observation, mainly through structuring, I would say. I think the structure is key uh, into something deeply, like, moving and just profound. Uh, I, I, I think he had the talent just to, uh, I guess create something out of nothing or like to see in those small glimpses of life uh, something much greater i mean you cannot watch those films and uh, not feel that there is something like greater lurking behind the everyday and i'm not even saying this in the religious sense i'm just saying like in the sense of like meaning of life or meaning of our struggle you know like why are those girls so determined to succeed? Like, what is it about us that we, you know, strive every day of days of our lives to to be better, you know, to better ourselves, to to achieve something? Like, what is it, you know? And uh, I I love that about those films. I love love how short they are. Often I like how funny they are because there is sense of humor to some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, by the way, the the one called X Ray was shot uh, was actually shot in Sokolovsko, so so you can see glimpses mm. of Sokolovsko. Okay, uh, that was yeah. at the very very end when the sanatorium was still operating. So this is actually Sokolovsko in, in there. But uh, yeah, and um, I don't know. There's I guess warmth, uh, some wisdom in them. They are never cynical. There's never like a, you know sense that this guy hates the world. It's just like. He wants to understand it. Um, and the films differ from one another. I mean, from the city of Łódź, this early yeah. short about the, the workers. It's just, you know, this very warm portrayal of a of a very tough life. I mean, those workers in Łódź at the time, you know, they were working very hard for very little pay, but they found moments of, of grace, of, uh, you know, of some, some pleasure, even by listening to this, balalaika band that that's on the radio yeah. you know and uh, i i don't know there's there's i i would say there's uh, deep affection somewhere in those in those films and i like them and one of them actually is is devastating and right now i don't remember if you discussed it or not um the one called i don't know uh, yes. yeah oh, yes. right yeah, it's uh, the simplest movie possible because the guy is just speaking to the camera like there's nothing fancy mm-hmm. yeah. about the form. But just the, the hell the guy went through. I mean, uh, you, you can feel for him and uh, 
And yet at the very end, he says that, you know, he's 50, I guess, at the time, or 48. And he says, oh, I just started my PhD thesis, you know, and, and that, that makes you think like, okay, so he's not entirely like beaten, you know, like there's, there is something in him that says, okay, let's start all over again, even though he was, you know, so humiliated and terrorized and, um, and, and, you know, he, he had a very, very difficult, um, confrontation with this, with the system and with this sort of mafia that was operating within the factory. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I guess it's a very meandering way to say that I find deep humanity in those films. Just, uh, just as simple as that. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Yeah, his the the, the the his fascination with uh human human behavior and the way that uh, uh people act and react to things is uh is makes what makes his documentaries such a fantastic looking glass into how he would later characterize his fictional films and how he would concentrate so much on his characters. So no, we agree. Uh, Matt and I were very fortunate to find online a uh, the box set of all of his documentary films. Ah, there we go. G- getting to enjoy those, it was a huge. I mean, it's not part of our. You know, when we do this show, it's not a part of uh, all the short films are not a part of our kind of our journey. But we try to make everything a part as much as we can, and it was such. It was the films were so enlightening towards his later works. They they opened up a whole nother uh, way to view them. And so, yeah, no, we agree that the documentaries are fantastic. And I think it was Matt who says, I don't know, it was, it was I don't know that you really thought was the key to kind of understanding a lot of his work, right? I do, yeah. I mean, especially his early um, period of fiction work, I think it was was so, it's so crucial to understanding both the context of the films that he's creating and also his his viewpoint on them and and i i love your description of what is so special about these documentaries because a lot of it is applicable to this later work that we're discussing i mean in particular decalogue in three colors there is a deep metaphysical quality to the work that is not specifically religious but it is informed by the questions that are asked in religion and i i think it it was so present that warmth and humanity and and try trying to make a connection with other people and so the fact that 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 was reflected that early and that we can see that coming to fruition in his fictional work uh late in his career is just um it makes it really special Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, you know, I fully agree, and I find it almost touching. You know that that the appeal is so international. You know, and it's so lasting. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I also like that you invited um, other other people to this podcast from you know such different cultural backgrounds. You know, from Japan, and it's it's just um, incredible how universal this um, this uh, filmmaking is. I had the pleasure of. Um, presenting Kishlovsky's work um, a couple of years ago when I was still working for a, a film festival in um, in Poland uh, called the Gdynia Film Festival. I went to Tokyo and I, I, I showed a oh. small program of, of shorts, of Kishlovsky's shorts um, at the Polish Cultural Institute in Tokyo. And uh, there was, <laughs> I will never forget that, there was like a full house of... Um, students from one of the universities i i i i forget the the actual name but you know these were young japanese people 
who probably, you know, never heard of Poland, or I assume they didn't know much about Poland. And I did show seven women, uh, seven women of different ages. And, you know, one of the most incredible moments, we had the discussion afterwards, and, you know, I was trying to tell them a little bit about, you know, the context and all that stuff. And once we, uh, we ended the discussion, this girl came up to me, you know, this very big girl, I guess she was, uh, she told me, she she was a wrestler on the school team, like for female wrestling, <laughs> and she told me like that she you know that the movie is about her. Like she told you know that 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 her training you know is so taxing and so difficult for her, like so uh, tough on her. The physical training that she she's you know undergoing as a wrestler on the team, and she said like this is my story, <laughs> and I thought okay like this is the ultimate proof. That Kishlovsky is universal, you know. If if a Japanese uh, girl uh, who wrestles at school can say, you know, this is about me. I mean, so and and the movie was made in communist Poland in the seventies. Then yeah. you can you can tell that there was something universal that's being struck. And also, I had the great pleasure to interview, and I wish that interview was uh, recorded. Unfortunately, it wasn't. It was a film festival situation. Uh, with the DOP of uh, Seven Women, uh, who was Vitold uh, oh, okay. Stock, and he he lives in London now, by the way, um, you know, and he told me an interesting thing that I never knew. Uh, he asked me at some point, you know, it was I asked where the movie was shot. It was shot at the um, theater theater school in Warsaw. Here, I actually know the building. And then I asked uh, several questions, and at the very end, he said, "Did you notice something?" And I said, what? Did you notice that all the women in the film are the same physical type? And I said, well, not really, but now that you mention it. And he said, that was one of the key aspects of the film, to make them all look similar, so that, you know, we have this feeling that it's actually one continuous life story. And he said, do you know who whom they look like? And I said, no, I don't know. They all look like Kishlovsky's wife. So he actually cast them like also on the basis uh, on the looks because apparently this type of this brunette, you know, uh, woman was was I guess his type of woman. If you look at Irene 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 Jacob, you know Irene Jacob in in the later films, uh, there there is uh, you know he said yeah they all look like Kishlovsky's wife and you know he, they were very much in love. It was a very happy marriage and uh, apparently that was also you know his idea of female beauty was also captured captured in that in that film wow wow hmm. <laughs> when you talk about the universality of his work um i'm curious what you think about him in the context of other famous polish filmmakers you mentioned vaja and um obviously um uh, pa- pavlikovsky is getting a lot of uh, attention now after cold war uh, on an international scale do you feel like um, Kieślowski is still a fundamentally Polish artist, or do you think of him more as an international filmmaker? I think he's both. I, I think Pawlikowski is actually a good comparison because uh, Pawlikowski, you know, grew up in Poland, then he went to the UK. He lived, I, I guess, for most of his life. He actually worked within the British film industry. Then he came back to Poland. Mm. He made Ida. Uh, and and then you know uh, uh, the rest followed. Um, I think Kishlovsky is um, both, but uh, probably he's one of the most international ones. I, you know, Vaida is uh, 
I guess, more obscure, also more difficult to, to follow in terms of historical references in his films and sort of this deep idiosyncrasies um, uh, in, in Andrzej Wajda's films. Um, and uh, Kieślowski seems to be the one who was sort of, I don't know, like flexible enough or just at ease to, to very quickly... Um, communicate stuff. I, by the way, and, you know, it, it has to be mentioned and repeated uh, often that I think he was simply a great storyteller, period. Like, I think yeah. he was a great film storyteller. And that wa- that's what made him into an internationally recognized director. Because if you look at those films purely from storytelling point of view, they are quite amazing. I mean, just in terms of how he uses camera movement and editing and dialogue, like very, you know, sparsely, but very intelligently. Uh, When I look at Blind Chance, which may be his, I guess it may be his masterpiece, uh, you know, uh, it's it's, it's beautifully crafted, you know, there's, uh, you know, this whole first opening five minutes, you know, of this really strange editing, you know, like we don't know what's happening, like, is this the present, is this the past, like, what are those images... I mean, this is a beautifully edited sequence, and I think he had filmmaking in his blood. I just like with every cut and every uh, in every film, you can you can sense that he knew exactly what he was going after in terms of you know the effect, in terms of the shot. Um, uh, he was a natural born, born filmmaker and natural born storyteller, I think, and. Uh, Mm, and we don't get many of those. I mean, even internationally, there there's only a small portion of of film directors of whom you can genuinely say that film is their me- medium through and through. With some of directors, you can say, oh, probably they could be also I don't know writers or painters or like some. But with Kishlovsky and some others, you 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 look at the work and you say, yeah, this is. This is a filmmaker's work, you know. Like this wouldn't work in any other medium. This is uh, this is made for film, and this and film made it possible. And I think Kishlovsky is um, is one of those guys. Do you think there's a Polish filmmaker that is kind of working at the same level uh, in terms of his style of Kishlovsky's style and concerns, or is there someone we should be kind of turning an eye towards that is uh, not really? known here in the United States that we should be paying attention to? Yes, I, I, I think there's one guy who who I think is uh, in a way um, attuned to Kishlovsky, but also, of course, he's doing his own thing. And he made a film called The Last Family, which was made in, I guess, three years ago, four years ago. I actually wrote about the film for RogerEber.com. Uh, I can send you a link. It's called, yeah, The Last Family. It's... Um, for me, the best Polish film of of, of the past ten years. Uh, it's a biopic um, of sorts uh, of a very controversial painter, uh, Zdzisław Beksiński, who created those very nightmarish uh, paintings and and of his immediate family. Uh, by the way, it also takes place in an identical. Uh, uh, housing projects down to you know some <laughs> architectural details. So I guess maybe there's something in those in those buildings you know, that, that that inspires filmmakers. But but if you see the film, I, I think you would you would you would find it amusing that 
that um, that that is exactly the same design. Um, I don't know if you have access to Canopy. I know the film is on Canopy. Yes, it is. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, there you go. It's it's a fantastic film. Some dark humor there, and uh, yeah, I would I would point to him. Uh, but in a in a way, Kishlovsky is always present. You know, there's also this short film. Uh, which uh, a couple of years ago, two years ago, won the award when there was the Kishlovsky screenwriting contest. They did it to commemorate uh, Blind Chance. And this young woman won the contest with her short film, which is called The Best Fireworks Ever. Uh, and it was inspired by Blind Chance. There are some... If you watch the film, I, I will I will try to send it to you. Uh, there, it's clearly inspired by the by Blind Chance, and it was very beautifully made. She's, I think, you know, the person to watch. Uh, but um, but I think that you know, young Polish filmmakers now uh, not necessarily um, look at Kishlovsky to mimic him or to you know try to uh, do the similar thing. Uh, but he's always there somewhere, you know, like lurking. He's uh, He's always there, and uh, those those films are actually, I think, still pretty much um, alive. Yeah, I think part of that is that, you know, you compare him to somebody like Vaja, and his his work doesn't require. I you know we I think we've deeply enjoyed uh, learning the context surrounding Kishlovsky's work, but I don't think it uh, requires the same level of context that something like Man of Iron or, or even, you know, uh, Ashes and Diamonds uh, requires in, in terms of being aware of Polish history and um, kind of how c- deeply connected it is to the, the, the central premise of the films. Whereas even something like Short Working Day, which is so specific to Poland and Polish history and Polish politics of the time, you could just watch that and, you know, as as Travis mentioned on that episode, think of it as a horror movie about a bureaucrat <laughs> being attacked by zombies. So, I mean, it's it's uh, it's very, you know, I think that that underscores your point just about the fact that he was so fundamentally a storyteller and uh, and a, a, a filmmaker at, at, at heart because uh, his his films exist on their own in their own kind of closed loop universe so successfully yeah i completely agree and i always when i look at blind chance at the extended version yeah. uh, you know w- when there's this whole sequence in this uh, like shelter for for um uh drug addicts uh and, yeah. and there's this this whole um negotiation and the the it, it's it looks yeah. like a, like a sydney lamette film from the 70s you know like it looks oh, like yeah. dog day afternoon you know like right. suddenly the camera is like immediate very immediate very sort of fly on the wall and uh yeah i you know it's 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 just a pleasure to see those films and i never get tired of them i mean some of them i guess in, in with passing years like war off in a way i mean i'm not crazy about some decalogues uh I'm not crazy about four, for example, uh, or, or or seven, which I guess is nobody's favorite, uh, famously. <laughs> uh, but uh, and also, I, I think with passing years, I I have more problems with red, for example, than I than I you know had initially. I, uh, but uh, but still, I mean, look at those films. I mean, there's so much beauty, <laughs> and so even even if if you know uh, one element of them may may you know grow old or just seem 
uh, irrelevant after those years, something else will catch your eye. You know, something else will 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 carry you through. And um, even I remember when I first saw Veronique, I was puzzled. I you know I was probably too young to see it anyway. Uh, but uh, but is that a movie that you could ever forget? <laughs> I mean, like with this whole notion of you know this girl and the strange connection that she has with this other woman and some images there. I mean, I think those films get under your skin. You know, they are they enter your system. I mean, and you you can reject them at first, but but they will stay with you. I mean. I, I watch so many films that I immediately forget that totally yeah. don't stick, you know. And these films, they yes, they entered my system and uh, they are circulating somewhere, uh, somewhere there. And and also, what I found is that uh, when I come back to them at different stages of my life, I I reassess them. You know, I mean, it's a different film when you watch Blind Chance at twenty, and when you watch Blind Chance at my current age, thirty seven. These are two different films, you know. I mean, you you keep thinking about your own choices, you know, your own situation, and um, you you keep asking yourself uh, questions. And I I think that's also uh, something something uh, special about those films. So we, as usual, we do we do our research and we do our uh, our readings. And I read a fantastic article you wrote about. Um, how you do live translation for your parents? Oh my god! <laughs> wow! I, I it was a it, it was an absolute it was absolutely beautiful piece and really kind of talked about the magic and 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 the wonder of of films and how they become a communal experience when shown in different ways and so I was wondering if there is a with with a lot of his films being known uh so 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 much for their writing, especially when we're talking about like something like the Decalogue. Um, is there anything that, uh, anything that's being lost in translation in some of our, you know, in the translation for American audiences that, uh, that you've caught or that we're aware of like little details or small pieces that have just kind of just not, not made the transition the proper way. Oh well, the, thank you for reading that piece. That that's that's really nice. Uh, um, I uh, actually no, <laughs> I think that you know the the translations <laughs> that that I that I know because some you know I watch those films often from 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 Western DVDs. So I look at the 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 subtitles. I would say it's usually a good job. That's uh, I'm trying to think if there's a film. I mean, Kieślowski doesn't really rely that much on like wordplay. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at the dialogue, it's pretty straightforward. Um, I would say that uh, maybe, um, uh, maybe in Camera Buff, some you know, like uh, some of the nuances, because Philip and this may not come across. Philip is quite a um, a simple guy, right? So mm-hmm. he uh, he speaks in, especially in the first part of the film. He speaks in a way that sort of indicates his class uh, mm. status, um, yeah. and then once he meets, you know, this glamorous journalist from television and blah blah blah, then he also also his language changes a little bit. He, um, mm. you know, he became becomes more quote unquote intellectual. Um, so so tiny tiny nuances like that but uh, in general i would say no i would say that you know these are films that use dialogue that is pretty straightforward quite um 
Also, not very, not very talky movies. I mean, apart from I don't know, which is all talk, uh, or, <laughs> yeah. or Factory, which is also uh, all talk. I wouldn't say there's. Well, okay, one thing, and I actually mentioned that in the piece that I wrote on Blind Chance for Cineast. It's h- horribly difficult to translate that sentence that the father tells Vitek. In, uh, in, in over the phone before he dies, like yes. uh, th- there is, and I, I, I honestly don't have the right answer how to. Oh, I'm so glad that you brought that up because it, it um, that was one thing where it said one thing on the Criterion Blu-ray that that we both watched, but then in some of the things that I researched, it said something that seemed quite different in interpretation, yeah. and that could have been sort of what, what what do you think was kind of the the thrust of that of, yeah. the, of what he fi- said at the you know on the phone yeah i was thinking about that and i i was trying to come up with like the best translation because it's such a simple yeah. sentence in polish it's nic nie musisz so um so literally the words like in the order mean nothing uh no and have to, okay, but 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 I would say the the meaning is something like there is nothing you have to do, like there's like there's nothing in this world that you really have to do, like mm. everything that you do is your choice. So I would uh, translate it in an elaborate way, like you have no obligation, you have no obligations, you okay. have not you have nothing that you would be really obligated to do. So really the sentence is designed to convey uh, a scary freedom of choice you know like like there's yeah. like there's no uh, like the father mm. says to his son you know what i won't tell you like because there is actually no obligations like there is no cr- clear rules you have to figure it out for yourself so this is the trust of the sentence that vitek whatever vitek does with his life it will be sort of based on his choice but then the whole movie shows that actually <laughs> our choices yeah, are choices. only part <laughs> part of the puzzle right so mm, at the yeah. end we are we are sort of um i guess you know not fully uh grasping our the trusts of our lives you know so yeah th- this is something like that like you have no obligation you don't have to do anything mm. yeah that's interesting that's great yeah, I don't. I don't actually remember how they translated it on the Criterion disc. I, I don't. I don't. Re- it's. It, I. I believe. Correct me if I'm. If you remember, Travis, but I believe it's. You don't have to. Dot. 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 Mm. Yeah, that's 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 what it was. You don't have to. Right. Like, yeah. Well, so this is not a. This is not a very good translation. This is not a because. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, because that would suggest there's another part of the sentence missing. And this uh, yeah. sentence is complete. I mean, it's very different. It's it's a complete sentence, mm-hmm. and it means mm-hmm. you are not obliged to. There is nothing that you are obliged to. Like this is this yeah. is the closest yeah. that I can get to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's closer to kind of what was was uh, written in the things that I read. So, um, it, it, I think that it, it's it's still open ended. Um, in terms of what he meant by the sentence in in a closed sentence, but it's extremely open ended in the translation that uh, that they provide on the on the Blu-ray. So it makes it kind of you know it's a crucial moment for him, and it, and it, in a way that sentence is uh, as you mentioned directly addressing the theme of the movie. Um, 
Yeah, it's funny because uh, we have both the Arrow and the um, Criterion Decalogues and because uh, of the, the available extras on both of them. Um, and the I a few times watched the episodes uh, back-to-back, um, the Criterion and then the Arrow, and the translations are different. They're, they're not... Um, they're not I don't think that it changes the meaning of anything, but it is it is different enough that you notice it when you watch them that closely. So, yeah. I do remember that I, uh, yeah, I, I watched all of those materials on all of those discs as well. And I do remember being troubled by the sound on, on Criterion. Yes, on the short film about love. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that in your yeah. essay. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. Well, and do you think that was... So you you mentioned in the essay that it was because it, you think it was because it was shot some of it was shot on twenty four frames per second and some for twenty five was that you think that's the just the difference between the footage that they were shooting for TV versus film? I think it's a glitch. I I honestly mm. uh, I actually after I read the piece I I mean after I wrote the piece I did some research and I you, you, <laughs> I went crazy I, I I just contacted the actual sound person who worked on those mm-hmm. films you know because he lives he's a professor of sound design here in warsaw nikodem uh, waniewski and um, i showed him all the materials and he said that actually probably there was a mistake made during uh, the digital restoration you know of this particular mm-hmm. uh, um, copy of the film so yeah i i never i never got any response from criterion but this is a mistake i mean this is really they should uh, i know how diligent they are i, I remember how once someone pointed out a mistake on the Blu-ray of uh, Dress to Kill, and they pulled the whole like, yeah, yeah. Blu-ray, and then they re-released it. Um, they, they, they never reacted to that piece of mine, but, but I, 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 it is a mistake if you, um, if you compare the, you know, the actual uh, sound. I mean, so at, at times it even sounds ridiculous, you know, like the voices simply don't match the, the bodies, but... Um, but yeah, it's interesting that what you mentioned about the translations. I never, I never compared the the two translations on those discs. But uh, by the way, you may be uh, happy to hear that Arrow, is it Arrow? Yeah, I think it's Arrow. Uh, they are preparing a new box set. Uh, I know this because I actually participated in it a little bit. Uh, there oh, next great. next year uh, there will be a box set and. Um, I actually recorded some materials, like some introductions to that, but I have no idea when it will be released. Probably spring 2020. Uh, There will be four films uh, in uh, Blu-ray quality. uh, And let me remember, Camera Buff, No End, Blind Chance, and something else. Scar, this car, yeah, this car. There will be a wow, four, yes. four film. All of his other theatrical yeah. features. Yeah, yeah, and we recorded uh, Daniel Bird, um, film historian, uh, based in the UK. Uh, he came to Sokolovsko, the place I mentioned to you, and we recorded, we recorded four short introductions to those films um, wow. in Sokolovsko. So I, I, I very much hope that uh, it comes out soon because I only have Blizna in like this very, very bad. Uh, VHS, yeah. so I I hope that you know I would love to see it in a better a better resolution. Yeah, the scar um, unfortunately disappeared from the Criterion Channel here in the U.S., and so it's it's currently not available um, anywhere. Uh, the, the other films 
are available uh, for streaming on the on the Criterion channel, which is wonderful. I hope Arrow gets around to to reissuing the uh, TV films as well that were included originally on the Decalogue because those are really essential works. Uh, yeah, to, to absolutely, absolutely. I don't know if you've uh, if you've managed to watch that. Um... A TV piece he made uh, called Kartoteka in Polish, which is like dossier, I guess, in English. Uh, he, it was ni- 1975, I guess. I only saw it once. It was broadcast on TV, but um, it was basically a TV adaptation of a modern play by, by right. Tadeusz Różewicz. Uh, and I think that remains pretty much unavailable, if, I, if I'm yeah. not uh, mistaken. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that and the photograph we tried to ah, find. Yeah. I never saw difficult. the photograph. I never saw the photograph, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you think that there's a sort of a work in his catalog that is kind of undervalued or underseen by people that uh, for people who are listening right now who haven't been watch, watching along uh, through the whole season up to this point, do you think there's one they kind of definitely have to go back to or that that you think deserves to be kind of held up in the, or, or released in, you know, the pristine, beautiful condition of films like Blind Chance and Decalogue and Three Colors have received up, up, up to this point? Uh, yeah, well, uh, I would say Personnel is a film that I think mm-hmm. people should see, you know, like it's, it's amazing. It's a little really TV is. movie, you know, like made for nothing. Uh, like you can tell that it's just, you know, actual theater locations and it's not yeah. Yeah. it's not even a movie you know like it's a tv piece but 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 wow i mean it's um very moving i like the main performance uh i i like the issues that the film raises um i know it's available on the arrow um box set although i don't think the box set itself uh is available anymore i don't know no yeah, it's not it's right it's yeah. it's out of print so um so yeah, I I would point to that. And by the way, that was a great box set. I I really appreciated it. Yes. I I couldn't believe it. You know, like they they put together all this wonderful TV work. So I really I really they deserve a salute. Um, so yeah, I would point to probably to personnel, and um, and to anyone who and if there was a one film like if I meet a person and they never saw any film any anything film by Kishlovsky. I think that Kamara Buff is a perfect entry point because uh, mm. because it has this extremely likable main character. I mean, you cannot not like Philip. You know, there's something goofy about yeah. him, something funny, something desperate a little bit. I think there's a sad streak in, in him as well. And I think Philip is a great entry point to um, to, to Kishlovsky and and also to many, many themes of his films, you know, like this uh, uh, this particular film, Kamara Buff, I always, uh, also I like to show it to the students because uh, because they are always captivated from, from the word go. I mean, it's immediately captivating, you know, like uh, they want to know what's, what will happen to this guy. And, um, um, and yeah, we have an anniversary, right? It's uh, 79, so... It's a fortieth anniversary this wow, year of, uh, of Kieślowski. <laughs> so yeah, camera buff. So yeah, that's probably the one that I would point to as the easy entry point. That's yeah, that is I, I agree. I think that's the one that will really uh get people, especially I can totally see 
film film students being into it because it is a it is a journey as a young as a filmmaker finding himself and finding his voice, which is great and uh, a very enlightening conversation. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Absolutely, it's a pleasure and an honor, and really. Uh... Uh, you you guys made it such a pleasure to even to revisit some films uh, on my own and uh, uh, just be aware that uh, you have listeners in Poland. I I'm not the only one. I actually <laughs> learned about your podcast from a friend of mine, who oh, wow. uh, who yeah who who just told me you know did, did you ever hear like those two guys like talking about Kishlowski? So you do have <laughs> listeners here. I want you to be aware of that. And I usually uh, listen to your podcast just as I'm traveling. On, on on a tram and uh, it it once happened it was actually funny that i was listening to your podcast and the decalogue uh, housing projects was just flashing by <laughs> in the background so there are those little little moments you know uh, that are very nice so so keep keep doing the good job and really thank you so much for for having me i uh, it was a pleasure thank you and yes thank you so much for for coming on and, and talking with us it was it was wonderful and i know your um your knowledge and interest in film extends beyond Kieślowski and so we'd we'd love to have you back in future seasons and talk about all the the great um world cinema that we we all love thank you thank you guys and uh yeah absolutely it's been a pleasure and hopefully uh talk to you uh, again at 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 some point Okay, so we are back. Uh, welcome back, everybody. Um, the, through the magic of editing, we have fast-forwarded a couple of weeks to uh, conversation, <laughs> um, and we uh, we've had time to marinate and reflect on both the uh, the interview that we had and um, the. Uh, experience of watching these uh, 12 films, uh, the 10 episodes of Decalogue and the two extended versions, which I learned uh, from these extras, uh, actually featured none of the footage from the the shorter versions, which was pretty uh, remarkable. Um, That was crazy. And uh, and so uh, I thought it would be good for us to just uh, talk about um, the what what we've experienced, but also the uh, extras that are available both on the Criterion and Arrow sets, um, and just kind of reflect on this, uh, well, almost uh, 25 hours of conversation that we've had uh, about this massive work of uh, Polish cinema. Um, before we get into it, uh, I am back here with uh, Travis. How are you today, Travis? I'm doing well. It's cold outside, but you know what? It's I think too we're cold. Gonna... It's too cold, but at least we're warm yeah. and inside and talking, so that's always <laughs> nice. We need to go on a, a, a crazy night through the, uh, the the dark nether regions of Boston nightlife. Uh, <laughs> seems appropriate. It does. Um, so uh, that was a really great conversation that we had. I had a really good time with uh, Michal. Um, what did what did what were your kind of big takeaways from from listening back to uh, what we discussed well i really enjoyed just kind of getting the insider perspective of uh what poland was like at the time and what he remembers as a kid and then just kind of like 
the ins and outs and uh, where it stands in terms of, uh, you know, where this where the Decalogue stands in terms of kind of like its placement and importance in uh, Polish film history uh, at the time. I, I just really appreciated him being able to, you know, state so eloquently like lots of uh, little niggling questions I had about that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I thought it was great. How about yourself? Yeah. Like, what did you enjoy? I... I really loved that part of it and and just especially the the fact that there is still such a powerful presence of this era uh when this film was made in um poland both in terms of obviously the building that's still standing um and if you go to our uh, twitter account you can see uh michal took a picture of the building as it stands today um, on his way to work for us uh, which was uh, pretty cool um, and the fact that it's between a boulevard that is now has since um, since Decalogue was filmed is now named after a pope and another boulevard that is uh, translates as wild, I thought uh, was very appropriate for the series. Um, and just the fact that, yeah, I mean, that this communist era that that Kieślowski was working in. Um, continues to impact Poland to this day. I mean, I don't think that's surprising to anybody um, that such a major um, part of the modern era of a country's history would still have relevance. But um, I think just hearing it in detail uh, really gives it a, a good perspective. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it, it was also enjoyable to talk to somebody who's been to uh, the archives uh, of yeah. this director that we're covering and has spoken to his widow in his house that he lived in um it's yeah. it, it's a reminder that you know these these works were made by a human being and that they uh that you know we don't get to experience a lot of this uh, i growing up in los angeles i met many uh filmmakers uh and um, people who worked in the industry and obviously you work in the industry out here in massachusetts mm -hmm. and get to meet a number of working filmmakers but primarily from Hollywood. And so, um, you know, hearing about this, um, this culture outside of the U S is always enjoyable for me. Yeah. I think the other thing I took away that I really appreciated was, uh, his love of the documentary work and how important that is to him in understanding yeah. uh, Kishlowski as a uh, filmmaker. Cause I, you know, like we talked about in many of the episodes early on, as we watched the documentaries and, uh, paired them with, his earlier films, uh, you know, it, they are just as important to unlocking some of his uh, cinematic uh, techniques and uh, you know his statement about humanity throughout those pieces is is very prevalent and uh, it's been there since the beginning. So it was lovely, lovely getting that affirmed. Yeah, I agree. And we did a pretty good job with our first interview. <laughs> the first time we did an interview on the show, usually we just talk about movies. This time we get to actually talk to someone, and uh, I think we did. We held our own for our very first one. We did all right. I edited out all of your bad questions. So. Well, you know, I have lots of questions about you know socks and comfort of feet, and I was just you know I know it's a little disturbing, but you know it's important to kind of set the boundaries. <laughs> you always want to ask at least one sock question just to break the ice. Always, you never know. Um, all right, well, let's get into it. Um, Decalogue. <laughs> I mean, I think before we get into the just kind of the extras and everything and, and any any sort of specifics, 
Um, what was this experience like for you? What, what are your big takeaways about the, the series, but also just kind of what, what was it like to, to watch this for the first time, and especially in, in this fashion? I guess the biggest takeaway for me is that if you were daunted by this project, like as something that you're like, 10 hours of Polish cinema, what? Um, I cannot stress enough how necessary this is and it is not a chore at all when you start thinking about the idea of 10 hours of polish tv you kind of you know some people tend to shrink away from that idea but uh this project is so accessible uh so universal in terms of its uh its thoughts and its ideas and what its uh, intentions are that it becomes something very easy to slip into and find yourself missing after a while. You know, we've, we've been watching these episode by episode, you know, two at a time over the course of, you know, a couple months now. And I, I find myself going, ah, maybe just throw on another episode of the Decalogue tonight and just kind of, you know, get back into that world that he created. I really, uh, I really did enjoy it. And beyond that, it is a staggering work of of just filmmaking. Uh, the way that he is able to juggle all those episodes, all those ideas, all those thoughts, all those crews, cinematography, everything. Uh, the way he was able to juggle all this and make something that are individual yet in totality completely cohesive. Um, it is quite staggering. And... Uh, I appreciate it so much more um, being able to talk about it piece by piece and then being able to sit back and reflect on all the all the episodes and all the things we uh, dissected and digested because then I was able to also kind of go, wait, there were small things we didn't talk about here and here that actually now that I see it as a whole, I see that that is a running theme throughout and I it's it it becomes rewarding every time i think about it and every time i watch it so i really did appreciate going on this journey with you and watching it um any big takeaways that you had uh from from just kind of rewatching this again and any kind of uh ideas that cemented in your head or were reaffirmed well it's been a long time since i had seen it i watched it in the early 2000s on the the old uh dvd uh, box set um, and so I am a very different person and movie watcher, uh, mm. now than I was then. And I think, I think the two things that really, it, when I first watched it, I was really just watching the story, you know, just the, these people's lives, the characters, the main characters and kind of how their, um, how their arcs evolve over the course of each of the episodes. Um, and watching it. This time, I was more significantly struck by the things that surrounded those characters. And I think what I was most impressed with were the sort of mysteries, the oddities, the little uh, details or side paths that the episodes take, even if extremely briefly. Um, that really flesh out this universe and the the stories of each of the characters you know there's there's something both mysterious and precise about this work that 
I think is, as I've kind of alluded to throughout this discussion, a, a, a has a lot in common with short story work and the way that they're able to do that. I think it, it, it it's done so effortlessly that it can seem easy to do, but I think this so easily could have been heavy handed or um, unfocused and feel a little bit like somebody's trying to make a grand statement by doing everything all at once. And the fact that it doesn't come off that way, but it comes off as intimate and yet sprawling is, is so impressive to me. Um, and, and so I think, you know, it's, it's one of those works that, um, you know, you can just approach on so many different levels and get something incredibly rich out of it, no matter which level you approach it on. And I think that's really what I come away with is just this, this awe at the mastery of storytelling that is on display. And I, I think it's, it's really incredible when you watch some of these extras and even without beyond what they're talking about, just seeing how much there is packed into each one of these episodes and the fact that there are 10 of them, it, it's, it boggles the mind that he was able to pull this off in such a short period of time. It's, it's such a remarkable burst of creativity. Yeah. There's the, the, the concept of the project itself is just setting up for so many avenues of failure and mediocrity. Yeah. You know, a lot of times working in television, there's moments where we kind of just have to gloss over um, creativity in terms of information. You know, this we, right. it doesn't matter what's going on here, how pretty it is. This information needs to get to our audience so we can move this story along over in this other section of the show. And I think I never felt this way in this movie at all. There was never moments where our characters are turning to the audience to explicitly let them into this information. Um, he did an amazing job of kind of keeping everything very real in terms of the conversations that the characters are having um, and never kind of addressing the audience or talking down to the audience to help them understand what's going on. He really allows you to work through things yourself. And I think by doing that, it becomes more engaging for you as a viewer um, because you were putting yourself in these moral uh, quandaries, these situations and kind of figuring out working your way through like how you would feel in this situation or what you would do in this moment. And uh, it's, it's super impressive. Uh, it's astounding that he's able to master that much control. Uh, and I think it's, it's all the films he's done before this leading up to this that has given him that ability and that kind of that kind of energy to be able to put you know be a conduit and push this much energy into the project which just allowed it to blossom and grow into this amazing amazing work so yeah no i agree i agree completely about that uh that idea yeah it very much feels like a a work that can only be accomplished by somebody that has uh you know, 20 years of filmmaking under their belt. But almost to me, I mean, he was still in his 40s when he made this. Um, 
it feels like it, it 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 reminds me to a certain degree of something like Fanny and Alexander where mm. uh, Bert, the Bergman miniseries where um, it's almost like a summation of the themes that and and subjects that he's been exploring throughout his career um, and yet you know he was he he could have conceivably been only less than halfway through his career at this point um, he hadn't made a significant amount of movies we've covered uh, you know a lot of movies on on this show but for the most part most of them were tv movies up to this point he'd only made three features right uh, yep. the scar um blind chance and no end uh, one of which wasn't released until he was already in the process of making this um and, and the other one was heavily censored yeah yeah <laughs> So, I mean, it's, it's pretty wild to see uh, a work like this be produced by somebody who ultimately, you know, had not, I mean, certainly had no profile on the international scene. Um, as Michal mentioned, he, he hadn't even been accepted to Cannes for any of his previous films until Killing. Um, and... You know, I mean, I think we we both find a lot to like in those earlier works, but this certainly feels like a, a significant jump in in both scale and ambition and in in skill and abil- ability to pull it off to me. Yeah, no, it's a the only thing that I can and it's a weak comparison, but the only thing I can compare it to is uh, like peter jackson getting lord of the rings kind of like you're kind of like what yeah. lord of the rings and i'm gonna shoot it all at the same time and it's gonna be uh, you know all episode you're like what and you know to pull it off like that to have that drive and that energy to pull something off it's uh it's pretty astounding and yeah no it's a uh, you the the way that uh Kieślowski used this television series as a means to also make uh, some feature films within the work um, that he was released before the release of the show. Um, I believe that's right, right? The Killing was a short film about Killing was released before the series. Yes. Yeah. yes. Um, you know, that's also a stroke of genius. You know, who who thinks of doing that? No, there's no television show out right now that is, uh, you know, planning on recutting episodes into a feature film unless... Uh, David Lynch is going to do that with the return, like re-edit yeah. it for us, you know, that that's just something. And that that's usually done in shorthand for European television shows to find an American audience, um, which is kind of what he was doing. He was trying to find a wider audience. So by taking a singular episode and making it into a feature film or, you know, as he originally thought, shoot, shoot a feature film and break it down into a singular episode of the show um is you know it's a great it's a great move and it's a it's a it's a wonderful idea he's very savvy in terms of thinking in those you know on all those planes at the same time it's pretty it's yeah it's remarkable uh this is if you know this is not the same this is this is almost not the same filmmaker we saw in years before but at the same time when you look back and see his progression you can completely see how he got to this moment you know, it's uh, that's that's the beauty of watching these films chronologically is you can see 
the you know what would be illogical for for most people who just jump in at this moment and start here with his work uh, you can really see the growth very clearly to this moment yeah and i mean it feels a lot like things coming together for somebody that was looking for specific elements that he hadn't quite gotten in his previous work i mean i think the music in particular is a is a good example of that to me Preisner's music here is so perfect for not just Decalogue but for Kishlovsky in general that I almost hear his music when I'm thinking about Kishlovsky's films from the 70s mm. um, and Blind Chance especially like it just feels like this guy was made for Kishlovsky and Kishlovsky was made for him um and, you know, Paishevitz feels the same way where it's like this guy who was so sort of um, concerned with the morality of things and the um, and had this this experience of of being this person fighting against a broken system um, just for them to pair up feels so right based on Kishlovsky's previous work that. You know, it, it it just it seems like there was this bit of luck in terms of him finding the people that he needed to get to pull off what he wanted to pull off. Um, and this experience that he had le and leading up to Decalogue was the skill that he needed to pull it off once everything fell into place. Definitely. That and his editor, uh, is it Ava? Yeah, Ava Vall. Yeah. Evaval, I mean, the the trust and reliance that they formed over the years working together, it culminated in this as well. Because I know watching the uh, some of the extras, there's a wonderful interview with her on the Criterion disc, yeah. and they talk about their working relationship in which, you know, he was only going to see what she put together on the weekends. Otherwise, he was being a pain in the ass, which I completely understand. Yeah, but uh, the fact that he trusts her to uh, move pieces around and do these assemblages and, and work away from the scripts in terms of this isn't working. Let's find a new way. And, uh, you know, giving her those, those, that, uh, freedom because they have had a strong relationship at this point, uh, working together on other films. So it's, it's, that's actually, that's absolutely fascinating as well. It is, it's a real lightning in a bottle moment. Like, but like with all things luck, it's also, it's luck combined with, hard work right. and and also experience and it's it's one of those weird things like no one just like trips stumbles and no. makes a uh, a masterwork of cinematic genius no you put but you it, put yourself in the right position yeah. to get lucky for yeah, sure you, you yeah. find the right people and you connect yeah. and you give of yourself to them and they, they to you and then you're able to kind of harmonize into this beautiful uh piece they made yeah no it's 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 quite it's quite fantastic and it just all this does is become a uh, a springboard for like some of the best films you know in the history <laughs> you yeah. know, coming up after this it's yeah yeah her name is Ava Small by the way I'm Ava sorry Small. yeah yeah go. and I I found her her interview to be fascinating and um, and also just uh, the fact that you know I mean uh, I had I had mentioned on Twitter that she edited all of Decalogue, the vast majority of 
Kieślowski's work was edited by women. Um, and she mentions in, in, uh, in the extra that all of her assistants were female as well. It's mm -hmm. just, it's this fascinating, uh, quirk of film history that, uh, editing has been dominated by women, um, since basically women were pushed out of, uh, dir the director roles, um, once uh, talking pictures came in was sort of once once the corporate system was constructed for film uh, they kind of got pushed out of those roles and so they uh, editing became the position that women could rise up into and it's fascinating to hear that that happens all over the world not just um, uh, in in the US in uh, the French New Wave the a lot of the major editors were women breathless was edited by a woman 400 blows um and yeah i mean i i think it's it's one of those things where you can't um know what uh her work was you know like they mm -hmm. they shot the footage that they shot we we have we can't see the leftover footage so we don't know what she fixed or made better or put together in an especially intriguing way but i think the fact that she was able to do all of this at the same time that it wasn't progressive work of mm -hmm. i'm going to edit one episode and then two episode two and then episode three like she was literally sh sh editing as they shot and they shot it all jumbled up so she just edited one scene for one episode and another scene for another episode and the fact that they have such a distinctive character to them each episode in the same way that the cinematography has a distinctive character to it uh is just so impressive and and i think you know again reflective of the fact that he had all of these people around him that were just that knew exactly what this vision was and were able to execute it so impressively yeah it's uh the cinematography uh you know beyond the editing the cinematography is also a a, a really interesting and brave because when we talk about you know Preisner doing the music and Kishlowski directing and Eva doing this editing uh, the only thing that's very different here is that the uh, cinematography was done by a different DP every episode which I think modern television now is usually it's one DP with different directors so there is a standard vision visual um, right I love that every episode had a different look, but never at any point do you feel like it stands out, like it stands out like a sore thumb, like this doesn't fit into this world um, with the direction and the acting styles and the stories. Um, and the music, all that, too. And the yeah. music, that stuff keeps the continuation going through, and then this, this, the cinematography is able to... Uh, draw from the content and really make the uh, inner workings of these characters or the inner turmoil or the inner emotions come through in the visuals and it's a uh, it's it's astounding that that is able to work on paper that would be something that i think would make everyone go i don't think that's gonna fly because then you're losing that that visual uh, connectivity between everything but it's the exact opposite it gives each episode its own feel and its own its own standings but it it ties together everything so beautifully anyway yeah i agree um were there uh was there a specific episode that stood out to you out of the 10 or um 
and and also like do you feel like there's like a sleeper a sleeper favorite oh i yeah i mean this we can't do the complete podcast without us ranking things right like, <laughs> well we don't just... have to go one to ten because I, think... I know we don't have to <laughs> but i did anyway because <laughs> i can't help myself all right no i think it. I think I think my favorite of all of them is a short film about I mean killing the killing episode is yeah. is astounding. Um it is visceral and brutal and uh hard to watch at the same time you cannot not watch it. Um it's a uh, it's impactful in many different ways and aligns with a lot of my feelings about uh the idea of uh death penalties and uh corporate punish uh corporal punishment. Um but uh, I think I think my favorite kind of sleeper that I don't think is as popular probably as uh, a lot of the other episodes is uh, eight for me. Mm. Um, the uh, thou shalt not bear false witness portion, the two ladies who uh, um, reconnect later in life and realize that the lie that was told was to protect everyone and, you know, forgiveness yeah. is had. I just really love the emotional, the emotional conclusion to that episode, and the way that, through honest dialogue, um, through exploration of feelings and getting into each other's subjective points of view, so you can kind of understand what's going on and how that is able to heal two people who are able to bring themselves to forgive, to remember and forgive. Um, I thought that was so emotionally powerful, especially after so many episodes of uh, people sometimes uh, taking the petty way out or being without a decision to make because uh, something was taken away from them um, or have making a wrong decision and having it play out or deciding not to make a decision at all and letting fate take a take its side Um I just loved how that episode gave me some emotional closure, which I think I really needed, especially after watching uh, episodes uh, uh, five and six and seven, like back to back. How about you? Is there uh, is there one that is not maybe the most popular that really kind of spoke to you this time around? Yeah, I mean, I have been surprised by how long episode three has stuck with me um mm -hmm. which is the christmas episode uh where the uh ex-mistress uh takes uh the protagonist on a a wild journey through uh the streets of warsaw um mm -hmm. i uh i think it's you know i i really love the the cinematography in that episode and i love the sort of quirky characters that they met along the way both in a positive and negative light um and i think it's just the sort of the mood and the tone um you know it's kind of like um how there's the the eternal silly argument about whether die hard is a christmas movie i feel like episode three <laughs> is a real christmas movie and uh i i I, I think there's there's something very um, profound and and sad, but in a beautiful way um, about that story. And even if I think uh, there are more powerful kind of emotional touchstones in some of the other episodes that I might like better, 
um i i think that 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 episode doesn't get enough credit for what it does accomplish in terms of setting and and you know i i am very uh i'm very taken by it whenever i think about it um I think in terms of my favorites, it's hard to pick just one. I mean, I think the feature-length version of Killing is the best thing about the Decalogue. I still really like the episode, but I think the feature really takes it to another level. I think 5, 9, and 1 are probably my favorites, um, for all for entirely different reasons. Um, but I think they all what they all have in common is is a a sort of emotional catharsis at the end that feels very earned and powerful, um, and and really sticks with me um, for for weeks after watching it. I mean, I still think about these films even though we haven't actually um, put any of the the ac actual uh, episodes in the in the player for. A couple of weeks now um there there's there's just an endless amount to to dissect and to to think about um so it's it, it's pretty powerful i think maybe surprisingly six might be my least favorite episode um mm -hmm. just because i think it's harder for me to kind of connect with those two characters and especially the the guy um know I, I think maybe four and seven might also be towards the end but i really liked seven this time i don't know there was again it, it felt it felt very powerful uh, uh at the end and and earned uh so you know i think they're all great really <laughs> it's uh it is it's it's hard like you start you know you can kind of you know like you talking about three just now as as one of the sleepers that kind of snuck back up on you again when I sat down to kind of, you know, I went episode by episode and wrote out the themes of them for myself that I picked up on. And it wasn't until I sat down, you know, months after watching episode three that I started writing down the theme of, uh, you know, the idea of that episode, if you follow the commandments, is keep the Sabbath day holy, which we discussed in where it kind of works and where it doesn't. I think we tied it a lot to the Christmas and the holiday and kind of family. And it wasn't until... I'm sitting down to write this that I started thinking about the idea that, you know, what is the Sabbath day? It's a special day. It's something that you kind of want to keep and remember. You know, that's the whole point of it is you remember this day and you go through these actions every week to kind of remember these things. And that's what that girl was. That's what the woman was doing in that episode. She was making a memorable night um, that they will always be able to remember and share to make special for them because she knows their relationship is dissolving. And it wasn't until writing that stuff down that that kind of connection was formed, you know, that, that idea kind of came forth and it, it now it, you know, that movie now jumps up in my estimation again, just by, you know, thinking about it and revisiting it. So no, I agree. I think, uh, it's hard to say which one is the, you know, the, objectively best episode of all of them it's it's uh they all play upon each other and they all you know i bet if we we would have different feelings about these two if we jumbled the order watched them in a different order completely having that number one episode be the first episode you know really sets a certain tone but yeah. 
it would be a completely different tone if we started with number two or with number uh, number eight. You know, it's a it's a you know, it just is it become a completely different beast. And I find that fascinating that that's a sign of some quality work that you can kind of pull different uh, ideas and thoughts from things depending on which order you watch them. So speaking of order, I have a uh, fan theory. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I, uh, as we were watching through these, I noticed something, which is that uh, these 10 episodes are, to a certain degree, mirrors of each other based on the order that they are presented in. Um, now keep in mind, they're... Uh, once we get to five and six, this is going to get a little dicey because that's the hard one. <laughs> but one and ten are both about fathers and sons. In one, uh, he lo- a father loses a son, and in ten, uh, sons lose a father. Two and nine are both about um, a married couple dealing with infidelity, uh, and the husband has a medical condition, and they have to decide whether or not to have a child together three and eight are about uh two people who have a mysterious and and loaded past uh together um a connection that we don't uh we aren't aware of at first and that they don't know the full extent of what happened uh in their past and they go on a wild crazy night through the city uh where they encounter strange people and try to reconcile their relationship four and seven are both about parents and children finding out that the parent they thought wasn't their parent uh, and dealing with the uh, aftermath of that revelation Um, and then five and six were both expanded into a film (laughs) <laughs> that's all i got like, for that one you go five and six can but be i think killing a, versus a rational love. emotion yeah yeah i mean killing versus love sort of the the yeah. sort of diametrically opposed concept love and hate love and hate yeah. being at the yeah. center of everything yeah that's pretty uh i'm gonna buy that theory 100 <laughs> percent. if you were selling a book on that theory i would purchase it day one well i have good news for you it's uh 29.99 uh just <laughs> <laughs> plus shipping so and handling shipping and handling always gets me i refuse to pay it <laughs> what's the handling part it's already in a box um no that's fantastic i i had a i had a theory about odds and evens a while back but then when i sat down and kind of you know to flesh it out it was not true at all so i kind of just <laughs> abandoned that idea <laughs> it was uh, it was all about the uh i was I, w- I thought at one point until I started digging deeper at the cameos that each other makes in each other's films. Um, that was the other thing that, you know, kind of tied the worlds together is that, you know, the cab driver from five is uh, in an elevator and yeah. four, you know. Um, and then that's when I started to realize that there were more cameos than I had originally caught and that they didn't link up odds evens, which is what it started to look like on first blush, but then later upon further investigation, it was not true at all. So I kind of abandoned that idea completely. Uh, <laughs> along similar lines, what do you make of the the uh, the witness and the, I mean, he's not in every episode. He's not in 10 and he's only briefly in seven. They, they had to cut his close up. Um, 
does that lessen the impact of him? Is that was that a mistake not to include him in those two episodes? And does the absence of him in those two episodes make it clearer that he wasn't necessarily needed for the films to have the kind of weight that I think they intended to um, lend to the the films by including him? I think, in my opinion, these episodes could have been done without this character. I think there are moments where, you know, I think the idea was a clever one to begin with. Like, let's have this character that is always kind of, like, to tie everything together because, you know, in the outset, I'm sure they sat down and were like, okay, how do we make this cohesive? How do we tie these narratives together? Like, what is the thing that can is the connective tissue to make people understand this is all in the same world? And that is a good device, this, uh, this silent witness to uh, these moral choices that these characters are making. Um, I think the absence of him in 10 uh makes sense to me because that there's you know we discussed it in that episode it didn't really feel like he was needed there was no heavy moral choice because it seems like these characters were making uh, they were so aloof to the issues that the the bigger world around them because they're you know thrust into this world of stamp collecting this cutthroat <laughs> cutthroat a <laughs> dark and mysterious world of stamp collecting um because they were so aloof to these ideas that uh people were going to take advantage of them in more nefarious ways than what they thought um you know there were no real moral decisions even when they turn on each other and rat each other out as being probably the thief um even that moment there's no moral weight to it because you can register instant regret and they, they go to each other to, you know, admit their faults yeah. right away. But, you know, if you're going to use the moral, if you're going to use the witness as kind of like the the audience's judgment of that character in that moment, um, I think it's it is probably nice for a lot of uh, a lot of film watchers to kind of have that moment of, you know, you also saying, oh, don't open that letter. You're just going to ruin everything. And then he looks at her and she doesn't yeah. open the letter or you don't know what's going on. It, um, I think those moments are kind of needed as audience members. But in overall, I think he wasn't necessarily a needed needed thing to tie everything together. I think with the removal of him, you still have those moments of... Uh, characters pondering the possibility or thinking for a moment or figuring things out um on their own that you might not need that that uh that moment that uh, was used originally how about yourself what are your feelings about the the witness so i i generally like the addition in decalogue um there's not very much that i don't like in decalogue mm-hmm. i think it just works uh wall to wall but I will say that I think it ties into my one kind of minor hesitation about Kieślowski's work in general and pretty much everything that he made from Blind Chance on, which is that there is a tendency to uh, become enamored with a gimmick a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, whether he did that because that was kind of what excited him or interested him or if he felt like it was more kind of accessible to the audience um 
you know, it, it can feel sometimes like he's teetering on the edge of being too cute for his own good. And, you know, I think that happens in Blind Chance with the parallel uh, futures. It happens with the ghost in No End um, later on. Even just like the whole idea of building a series around Decalogue, which he has um, dismissed as a terrible idea. Um, but w that, again, feels a little bit like he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, and then the three colors of um, the French flag. I think all that stuff, it, it, it feels a little bit gimmicky. Uh, and so I think he's able, able to overcome that feeling that, oh, this is just a gimmick. Um, but I think it can be difficult with high concepts to uh, overcome that. He kind of, you know, it, it's a double-edged sword a lot of the time because you are putting out there a concept that people are going to find really appealing, but then you have to deliver the story and characters that is going to get people engaged beyond just that gimmicky concept. And the fact that he's able to accomplish that, I think is what part of what makes his films so successful and so popular. Um, but it can feel a little bit like, why don't you come up with a concept that is driving these characters and this story as opposed to just like a, a an idea that is separated from what is actually happening on screen. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's almost like the gimmick is what drove to making the story and then wanting to yeah, exactly. be better than the gimmick. You you know, he created these amazing amazing stories and characters and depth of emotion that it overcomes the gimmick itself but then at that point you're kind of tied to the gimmick and you're stuck with it um no i i agree i like yeah i totally think you know we could have thematically pieced together these same ideas without the watcher and same with you know the three colors trilogy if you didn't name them the three colors trilogy <laughs> and just you know Made, gave them each an individual name. I right. think over time, critics and people who uh, watch them discernibly would be able to put together that that common theme itself. You know, because right. the stories hold up on their own. Yeah. Well, and then certainly after Red, um, yeah, Heaven, so, Hell, and yeah. Purgatory was going to be the next one. Yeah. Ah. Um, so let's talk about these extras. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, there's. I think longer extras on Arrow, but there's more extras on the Criterion disc. And I think yes. that they are denser. They have a lot of uh, detail and things to think about. I mean, I could have watched the Annette Insdorf uh, extra 20 times and or, or over the course of a week, just watched it once and just paused it after... <laughs> two minutes to think about for a few hours what she was talking about oh, yeah. because there's so much in there no it is jam-packed i almost wish i almost wish on top of this she recorded a commentary for each episode yeah. like i would have loved to have gone like episode by episode listening to her thoughts you know she, being one of the preeminent scholars of kishlowski it's a uh, it's quite yeah she had lots of insight and thoughts about things that uh I found absolutely fascinating. She has really 
you know, she wrote a book on it for God's sake. Yeah, <laughs> that's the. We've been using her book we as have, one of our yeah. books that we talk about. Uh, yeah, and even one of the other uh, Kieślowski books that I've read um, pretty much straight up plagiarized her as well. So, oh man, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and the, whereas I think the other critic uh, piece is on Arrow, which is the Tony Raines piece, which is quite long, um, and I think my big takeaway from that was that he really doesn't want to uh, explain the story of each episode because the episode does quite a good job of explaining it itself, which he underscores during every episode that he discusses. <laughs> he's like, he tells the story of the episode, and then he's like, anyway, like before, when he's like five, there's five minutes left in the plot, he's like, anyway, I'm not going to tell you the whole thing, because the episode does quite a good job of that uh, anyway. But I love Tony Raines. He's... Uh, the best he knows everything that there is to know about movies has met every filmmaker from uh our lifespan and and has great insight on them both as a person and and on their work um but i did feel like it that could have been edited down into a 30 minute piece rather than a yeah. hour and a half piece well i think it felt and uh, correct me if i'm wrong it felt like these were supposed to be introductions to the individual episodes that they just kind of put all together. Mm. Like it was weird the way the structure of, I mean, I understand go episode by episode talking about it instead of just, you know, you really could have just done his whole conversation about the entirety of the, of the, uh, of the Decalogue, which is fascinating and great. And then you don't need the episode by episode or chop down the episode by episode and throw it on the front of each uh, episode as an introduction. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. It's a, it, he does, he has a lot of information there and I can listen to him talk for hours. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. It was a little long in the tooth. Um, what about, uh, the Kieślowski interviews that are included? I think it's the same interview. I didn't listen, even listen to the criterion one. Cause I think it's cut down from the longer version of the arrow interview. I think it was at the it was in England. Um, was it at the BFI? Yeah, it was at the BFI. Um, I I listened to it for a while and then realized that almost everything he talked about is in the Kishlowski on Kishlowski book. Right. Because I started going, this sounds so familiar. Like, have I seen? Like, and then I started thinking, like, was this something I saw in the Arrow one? Or And I started getting that kind of, like, weird feedback in my head of, like, why am I knowing everything he's saying? And then I realized that, a lot of the discussion of the Decalogue in the Kishlowski on Kishlowski book is is taking a lot from this BFI yeah. interview that they did. And so after I kind of made that realization, I kind of, you know, thumbed through it a bit, got a little forward to see, and it all seems pretty pretty reasonable. Not no no new information was I could garner from that interview yeah. kind of uh, that opened anything up. Because they did a really good job of keeping it together in that uh, Kieślowski book. I, I also, I, I have a very hard time with Q&As from the audience. Mm. Like, it's just, uh, like, it's very uncomfortable, I feel like. <laughs> like. Yeah, I've never really liked that. I like it when a moderator sits up there and yeah. talks. Or the audience puts together questions that the moderator sifts through yes, and makes into that, more intelligible that would be, questions. Yeah, yeah. 
that's much no. more enjoyable. Yeah, there's, you know, there's always somebody like whenever I go to Q&A, there's always somebody that has more of a comment, not really a question. Yes. And talks for five minutes about nothing in particular. Uh, you know, then there's the person who uh, their question is designed to show how much they know about the person's career. <laughs> um, yes. Or, or the completely off topic question that has nothing to do with what we're all there <laughs> yeah, for. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, um, yeah, so that, that part of it was a little bit difficult to listen to, but there were some interesting, um, insights. Um, and the other, the other thing is the, uh, the Hannah crawl, uh, interview mm. on the criterion set. What did you think of that? I love that. Uh, yeah. I didn't, I was unaware of that relationship. I, I guess it was something that kind of maybe glossed over or read in the Polish history book, but didn't really kind of uh, put two and two together. But listening to her talk about her, you know, how she influenced uh, some of the stories with some of her journalism was, was really fascinating. And I liked how she was kind of like a take no shit, give no shits kind of attitude about some things like, yeah, no, this, that was my story. He kind of just ran with it. And (laughs) like she, you know, she's old enough at this point where it's just like, I I can, I don't have to spare anyone any feelings. I'm just going to tell you how it is, which also probably uh, leans towards her journalistic nature anyway. But I like that one a lot. I think, I think my favorite out of all of them was the, uh, was the Eva Small interview yeah. on the Criterion discs uh, just about her editing and her relationship was because it wasn't about like most of the most of the documentaries or interviews we read or watched on all these sets uh, tend to come from a place of my relationship you know whoever they're interviewing my relationship with Kizowski uh, Kishlowski which you kind of, kind of gets old after a while. <laughs> You're kind of like, yes, yes, yes. We all know how he is. I just yeah. want to hear about like the working details of things. And she gets right into that. She's like, Oh no, I've known him, but here, listen, this is how we work. This is our workflow. Yeah. This is how we got things done. And this is when we all told him to get the fuck out of the office because we were tired of him. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's what I want to hear as a person who works in the industry. Those are the stories I really like. Uh, <laughs> The, uh, you know, the everyone propping each other up and, you know, yeah, making, puffing right. each other up is gets old really fast. Well, I was just so amazed by those side by sides of the of the feature and the episodes, knowing like that mm. I had watched them, you know, on somewhat, I think, consecutive nights at one point and not noticing because, the, I mean, the, the differences are so small. It's like the some, more birds fly away in, in one yeah. of them. Um, just the fact that, that they intentionally did not, rather than just shoot, you know, cut a, a feature and then edit it down, uh, to an hour that they constructed it intentionally out of exclusive takes, um, Mm -hmm. it's so interesting. And, and I mean, you know, we had mentioned on the killing episode, there's a few, there's, there's some flipped images and there's a few things that are different, um, in terms of dialogue and things like that. And then there's obviously whole scenes that are different, but, um, that, that it was that specific, that it was just, we are not using any of the same material that we shot for the feature for the TV episode, um, was so interesting and, and surprising to me. It it was completely like, you know, cause you, you kind of come to expect them to kind of 
you know, throw the whole thing away and start fresh for, and use, you know, just reuse the footage in, in new right. ways, you know, kind of like a, uh, Apocalypse Now Redux in which he, you know, went back to the drawing board and recut the movie using the footage, but you kind of don't know which takes he's using now because they're different. Uh, that's the that same concept that they were, I think they were shooting a four to one ratio they were talking about. Yeah. yeah. So they had four takes per shot to get whatever they needed. And they were using the best shot for the film, and then they would use either the next or, you know, whichever shot came out best after that for the TV version. Uh, that's fascinating. And yeah. it does it does make a whole different tone when you start seeing those side-by-side shots. Things are a little off. Things yeah. are a little scant. Things are a little moved over to the side. Uh, it's... I had no idea that it went that far, and I'm assuming it's also the same with a short film about love. Um, yeah. And I know they made a big deal about talking about changing the ending completely. Um, right. You know, no one, li- you know, he didn't like the film ending. He liked the TV ending. <laughs> Is that what, that's what he says, right? That's what she says about that. Like he wanted the TV ending, wanted to just be really sad and pessimistic yes. and over. And everyone else gave him the, uh, wanted the happier ending, which yeah. was what made it into the film. It was the actress's idea to, to do that ending. Um, and yeah, it's it, all the stuff about like, you know, how the film needed to be treated differently, um, you know, as it was being printed and cut into these things like this was not this is not like digital where you just like take file number one and drag it over to here and take nope. file number two and drag it over to here. This was an incredibly complicated choice that they made. And she was talking about how just a little bit like nervous she was that this was going to actually come out right and that she had to remember the notes in her notebook of which particular shot went where um yeah i mean it's a very precise and demanding task that she executed i mean it's 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 interesting too to compare uh what her experience was uh editing it with um paishevitz who was kind of just like the philosopher king of the project you know when he's talking i i found his interview really fascinating but for an entirely different reason which was that it gained you gained no insight whatsoever into the production of the film he was basically like yeah you know we did a whole bunch of stuff and like fortunately the actors and cinematographers and editors and all the production people were really good so it came out well (laughs) um (laughs) but yeah i mean he he it really gave i think gave you a unique insight into their writing process as kishlovsky has said in in some of the interviews that we've read like he he writes the whole thing there's no paishevitz is not writing any of the um scripts or even really any of the story or anything it's conversations that they have and you really get that sense from his interview that he is thinking about this on a philosophical level and he wanted to imbue these stories with a depth of um, philosophical investigation that was fascinating to him and that he felt on a personal level was extremely important both to him and to his country and so i really liked getting that side of it because even though obviously i think that comes through quite clearly in the film hearing from him 
what came from him and what he was thinking about while he wrote each of the episodes um, gave a kind of clearer perspective of separating the production from the uh, from the stories and the the philosophical underpinnings of the whole project yeah I think that's to be able to reach the depth of of uh moral discussion that uh Kishlowski is having within the films having those conversations uh and having that that sounding board to kind of talk to about these things and work out these moral dilemmas uh with him was uh it it really adds a lot of depth to everything that he's doing and I I agree I thought that was that was really interesting because you do expect you know you think about it as you watch these episodes that he is a contributing co-writer type thing to the project and then when you come to find out that he was more of a kind of uh you know just a, a person to discuss these deep issues with and and come up with these moral uh, quandaries and work through them it becomes something more of a fascinating uh uh character that he is and and how he he works in it's almost like having that uh you know <laughs> the guru hanging out with the Beatles. He's not a part of making the music, but he's there helping influence right. <laughs> the uh, new tones they're taking, you know? Yeah. So it was very, it was very interesting. Um, there were a couple other interviews with some of the cinematographers, which I thought were fine. I it yeah, didn't, they were fine. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of these two sets, I mean, assuming that somebody can get their hands on the out of print arrow version, I think, I think we'd all agree that the Decalogue, uh, criterion version is better than the new arrow decalogue version which does not include the tv work is that fair I, to say i would i would say 100 percent. i agree with that i um, mean even even knowing the frame rates are different it's slightly longer on the uh, criterion version i think i watched both of them they both look great it, i i wouldn't worry about it um but in terms of these two sets obviously i mean the criterion version has uh, the short film about uh, killing and short film about love. Um, the arrow, the arrow version, version does not. not. I yeah, I think I think the Criterion ekes out even the Arrow box set, uh, the night the bigger one. That's only because of the conclusion of those two films. But it it is a it is a crying shame that the other TV works that yeah. uh, that he has done is not accessible as of now. Um, that is a, that is a real shame, and I hope that yeah. either Arrow puts out a separate set of that, uh, kind of like what they did with Cronenberg's early works, which you know, just a nice collection of all that stuff, or Criterion puts out something that kind of uh, rounds out all the work they're putting out of him right now. Well, I can't I can't imagine that you know the the rights for those works are that difficult to get. So I'm hoping that that they resurface somewhere um now that we know that arrow is putting out his three other um theatrical features uh which i i, I assume they're gonna well i i guess they can't do in the u.s but i was wondering if maybe that was why the scar isn't available on the criterion channel if maybe arrow mm. got the u.s rights to it um so i'm not sure but uh, it'd be great if they just tossed the tv stuff on that box as well um <laughs> like yeah. people can own them twice uh, it's not that big of a deal 
um, but just make them available again because yeah, they're they're really worth seeing. Um, and and I think in the UK, Artificial Eye is coming out with the the short film about killing in love. So people who have the Arrow box set could go that route as well as opposed to um, buying the Criterion. But I sure am happy to have both of those sets on my shelf because they are are wonderful sets in their own right, and it's it's great to finally have the, the this decalogue series was not available for a very long time and um in the the edition that it was available in briefly it was in pretty poor condition so yeah this is no... uh yeah this is really yeah. special that we have this i think it's been around for a few years now so people have taken it for granted but i think with things like this and the apu trilogy and a brighter summer day we really need to give credit to these companies that are um, saving this work that is uh, just so significant in film history. And I think this is one that, that can't be forgotten, that we have these uh, in pristine condition is a very special thing that we should all treasure. Here, here. I agree with you 100%. So I I put ranking on the outline, but can we both agree that Decalogue is the best thing that Kieślowski has done up to this point? One hundred percent. I definitely uh, I definitely agree with that. I think this uh, this is leaps and bounds leaps and bounds ahead of everything else he has made. Um, the size and the scope of what he has accomplished uh, far surpasses anything else he's attempted, and the fact that he succeeded in such a um, momentous endeavor, uh, you know, this just massive project that sprawling could have easily, as we talked about earlier, uh, failed in so many ways. You know, even the fact that he doesn't have an episode that fails. You know, ten episodes sometimes we're like, yeah, that's the weak episode. Screw it. That's it is what it is. Let's keep moving and put our efforts right. into something else. He didn't. It, that isn't even the case. Even the people who hate episode ten because it kind of it changes the tone of everything and it's a weak ending or something like that. I think is miss, you know, I believe is they're missing the point of what that episode is trying to do in terms of a whole. And I think it's, uh, I agree 100%. This is number one. And I mean, for me, in terms of all of film and the things that we've talked about so far on this show, uh, to me, this is, certainly up there with uh 2001 and barry linden um and as and goodbye girl i think you know is a great uh i always i always call it goodbye girl a heartbreak kid is a <laughs> uh, is a great film but i think um uh i think those those three films are kind of art house and and cinema essentials i mean it's they're pillars of of cinema and i think perhaps this might even rise to another level i think if you are a film fan decalogue is an essential watch and an essential piece of film to understand uh kind of how it's working and why it works as well as it does and and just to experience on a human level yeah, it really is. Like I said, uh, this always has been something that felt daunting. Uh, like, it is one of the things to watch. And so because of that, you feel like yeah. 
you need to set aside certain time or it 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 goes beyond that it is it it feels daunting just because of its size and its uh in its running time but it is not it is if you're just sitting there flipping through you know 12 to 15 episodes of some netflix series just to pass the time you know this series easily could be put on a a network and garner just as yeah. much uh, acclaim as it got in the day it is uh absolutely fascinating and uh relevant very relevant to our times right now as well which is also important which is what makes it so timeless and universal yeah i wonder if that reputation of just being this like weighty thing that people have to tackle partially comes from the fact that when it's shown in theaters it's typically shown as five episodes on one night and then five episodes the next night which yeah uh you know i think is understandable because they're not going to make you come out 10 nights in a row. Um, but I do think um, it hurts it a little bit because people walk out of it so emotionally drained and even as good as it is, and it can hold up to that kind of a marathon viewing. Um, I think it, the way that we did this was very beneficial. I think you're able to reflect on these episodes in a much more, uh, at a much more natural pace and it makes it uh, even more impressive in scale despite the fact that you are spreading it out over a long period of time if you think about its intention from the get yeah you know one episode a week right. for 10 weeks yeah. <laughs> it's a uh it you know it's meant to it's meant for each episode to be something to ponder and think about and you know, and it's only after all the episodes are out and you can kind of watch them in totality. You can understand the uh, grand idea that he was uh, he was striving for, which I think is is fascinating. But, yeah, no, I agree. I think the uh, that it's daunting five hours in the theater. We, we have this conversation all the time in different groups about running times and how some people just won't watch a movie. Right. if It's over an hour and a half or hour 45 because time is precious to everyone. And uh I think this is time well spent uh, watching this once a week. You know, they're broken down into episodes for a reason. Just watch one. It's you don't have to watch them all at once. You don't have to pile through and do a marathon of them. They're they're not meant to be binged. This is like a this is like really good cheese. You don't just chow <laughs> down on the whole block and try to eat it. You just eat, you know portion it out small taste it's very flavorful and stays with you for a while <laughs> <laughs> how far are we going with this i don't know we could go forever <laughs> it's the kind of movie you wrap in foil not in saran wrap um let it breathe um no no i i agree i agree 100 percent. this and, is sipping um, films yeah no and and it's it's nice to know we are are not uh, finished with this Kishovsky journey that this was not the last thing that he made because we've got a lot of great films ahead before we uh, mention the next one though I did want to thank all of our guests for these Decalogue episodes um, we had uh, some wonderful guests starting with Josh Hornbeck for the first one Keith Enright uh, um, Cole, Cole Rolane, David Blakesley, Tim Lego and Daisuke Beppo all came on to talk about uh, some individual episodes of this series and it was uh, some of my favorite people uh, right there uh, that, that I've met through this um, movie group and podcast watching uh, listening experience and 
So it was a real pleasure to talk about these uh, towering works with them. Yes, thank you very much for taking your time to be with us on these episodes. It was uh, it was uh, fantastic, the conversations we had. And uh, yeah, I think, I think uh, I'm ready to... Uh, move forward in this uh in his filmography and really kind of get into his uh next uh, staggering work so the next thing that we will be covering is the double life of veronique which is uh just a regular old movie it's only a, yeah ain't just nothing special. one movie yeah we're not even <laughs> going to talk about anything else or not that we're not grouping two movies together we're not just one regular old movie, um, but it's going to be an exciting one. So I'm really looking forward to it. Is this one that you've seen? Uh, this is uh, this is one I have seen. I think this was the first. No, this is the second film I've seen by uh, Kishlowski, uh, and it was a while back. So I'm looking forward to yeah. revisiting it with new eyes and uh, with the with the weight of uh, his entire filmography behind it, which will be right. uh, fascinating to watch. Yeah. So I guess with that, we're complete. For another week.